Hey folks, welcome back to The Unfiltered Entrepreneur. And if this is your first time joining us, well then a big warm welcome. My next guest has become a very good friend of mine. We've worked closely together over the last four or five months. He's an international speaker, an author, a leadership and management coach. He's worked with leaders and organizations from around the globe. He spent years developing leaders through a globally renowned program called Outward Bound, which is a very, very interesting concept, a very interesting approach. I learned a lot, really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Steve McGee. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Notables Podcast, where we share transformative ideas and conversations with interesting and inspiring people. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. We're glad you're listening. This is Notables. All right, all right, Steve, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So, um, actually, Steve and I were just talking for a little bit, um, just talking about how we're setting up this podcast and stuff. And Steve comes from a long background of um, Agile and Kanban, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, yeah. Kanban. Well, some (laughs) people working for Lean Kanban University say Kanban. Kanban. So you can say whatever you want. Yeah. (laughs) So ultimately, if you've been a, a listener of my podcast, you've uh, heard me talk a lot or reference Scrum a lot and Agile, both um, you know, the, the, the mechanics of it, um, the principles, the mindset, that piece of it. Um, Steve has a, a long and deep you know, history um, uh, to the point that he's uh, working on uh, is this your your first book that you're working on, or a second? It's my first real book. I, I did a. I mean, I shouldn't say real, but um, I did a, a book for the Japanese market on a, like introduction to agile, and um, as well as we were calling it the Silicon Valley way. Yeah. And so there was this phenomenon of hundreds of Japanese corporations sending people to Silicon Valley to do research and try to learn new practices or like learn new technologies, but especially learn how to apply technologies to, you know, new markets or new products and stuff. Yeah. And, um, the, that kind of big wave of interest, that's, we were trying to address that was like, so the way these guys, you know, plan the work, the way they find opportunities, the way they, Invest in you know a hundred different opportunities that may go nowhere, and then find a good one and double down on that, and yeah, and do that remotely from a headquarters overseas. Um, we, it was mostly addressing that, yeah. And so there's a lot of agile uh, concepts in there, um, but it wasn't. I, it's not like a Scrum book or a Kanban book. Right. It's more like for uh, corporate uh, venture capital or uh, corporate innovation organizations to right. be, you know, how can we, how can we approach managing something like that? Right. And yeah. that was in Japanese only. It's only for sale in Japan. Oh, wow. So interesting. So yeah. did you spend some time over there? Oh, I lived there for six years. Yeah. Oh, you did <laughs> as part of that project? That you no, were no. That, I just lived there for six years and, and did, uh, at the time I was a, a, a management coach is the best way to describe it. But, um, what it was, it, or what I was doing is, a foreign company will have 
an office in Japan, mm-hmm. and they'll have to have some senior staff running it who are fluent in Japanese, especially Japanese culture, and can interact with Japanese staff right. in the way they expect to be interacted with. Yeah, because there's... <laughs> You can imagine what the foreigner I, I've come across does. them and yeah. said some things that weren't uh, well received yes, in the past. Yeah, yeah. culturally yeah. they're very sensitive. Oh, totally, very yeah. much so. And uh, so uh, the, the the local managers over there cause problems, chaos, just because of the way they are. Hmm. My original intention was to work with them to get them to understand Japanese expectations more and work better with them. But it turned out nobody was interested. There wasn't a market for that. Right. Maybe like a class or a half out, half day. Yeah. But um, they weren't interested in developing their skills because mm. they're going to leave, go back to wherever they came from. Right. Where the Japanese managers were committed to the companies, except for the few that just keep getting hired, like by headhunter to a new higher position with higher salary. There's a few guys like that who constantly leave the company yeah. but most Japanese guys if they start working for a foreign company they'll be there for a decade or more mm-hmm. and they'll build their career there and so they have real skin in the game as far as you know, the, the stupidity of the direction coming from the foreign office like it's stupid because it won't work in Japan Right? they have to deal with the consequences of that gotcha. so they're, they have a real vested interest in learning and uh, they were a very eager market for me. It was very easy to get work, and which spoiled me when I came back to the states. <laughs> it wasn't that easy <laughs> to get clients, but um, uh, yeah, it was very easy. And so the the biggest thing was um, they I was coaching them on how to be a manager as, as far as like an American was concerned, right? Because they had no idea. Mm-hmm. No one, even most Americans, don't even know that. Right? Uh, they couldn't at least explain it. Even if they're a good manager, they couldn't tell you what they're doing. But over there, I mean, they don't even have good managers in the country. The culture doesn't produce good managers, really. Right. You have to go to an extreme place like Toyota, which is totally unique. Yeah. Like the rest of the com- companies are not like Toyota. And, and most of Toyota is not like Toyota. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, a lot of what you developed and focused on mm. came out of Toyota, right? Yes. With Lean. Yeah. 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 The, so the the uh, the Kanban method, which is pretty much what I do. Yeah. Uh, there's very little else that I get involved with as far as like approach and stuff like that. Um, it was created by people who were working for Microsoft, who you know they, basically they had a CMMI level five services team, mm-hmm. and they were rated as the worst team in all of Microsoft. So think of how many teams Microsoft has. Yeah. And it's 2004, not like 1995. Right. 2004, they're offshore, Chennai, India, and they were the worst team out of all of them. Every team that was graded, they were the worst. Yet they were CMMI Level 5 certified. And what does that mean for people that don't know what CMMI Level 5 is? CMMI Level 5 is like, um, if you if you play video games, mm-hmm. it's it's like... God tier or what I don't play video games, but it's like yeah. if you collect crowns, it's like all the crowns or whatever it would be. But it, it's what's a better metaphor? <laughs> uh, well, it's like the 33 degree uh, Mason or like uh, um, uh, the Eagle Scout yeah. who's got all the badges. Yeah. yeah. It's like that. Yeah. And um, in other words, you could say they're the Navy SEALs of, of software. Uh, uh, maintenance and service. I like that work. Yeah, they were they were super badass. 
but they were the worst performing team. And so the problem had nothing to do with their skills. The problem had to do with management. Mm-hmm. So the people, the guys who, you know, essentially this one guy's named Dragos, he was the manager and he's like, give it to me. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of confidence, which helps. And uh, they applied things like the principles, some of the practices from the Toyota production system, the lean stuff. Yeah. Um, from Theory of Constraints, uh, this guy Eli Goldratt wrote a book called The, the Goal. Uh, the, the, there's a new software-related book called The Phoenix Project, which is essentially the same thing as The, the Goal. Huh. They're fiction. So it's like a story, like a hero's journey of a manager who figured everything out and made the company not be so stupid anymore. Do you recommend that book? I, I mean, highly recommend The Phoenix Project. It's the Phoenix Project. Book. I think it would even make a, an interesting movie, at least like made-for-TV movie, right. like maybe right. a Lifetime or something. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, they applied some of those kinds of practices, which come from the manufacturing world, to knowledge work. And you can't just directly apply lean to knowledge work because a whole lot of specific practices that lean does don't apply and you don't want them to apply to knowledge work. In manufacturing, uh, for example, my pen, uh, there's a very limited amount of tolerance that's acceptable in the threads on like screwing the cap into my pen. Uh-huh. If it's too fat or if it's too narrow, it won't work right. Right. So very narrow tolerance. And you want everything in every step of the way in the manufacturing process to have very, very high tolerances. And so what you don't want is variation. Right. Nothing to wobble, nothing to take a, a couple seconds longer, right. none of that. Um, so if you try to apply that to knowledge work, that would mean there's no good ideas. Right. Because knowledge work is thinking and it's ideas and it's, you know, new alternatives or uh, a different perspective is what creates like a design, for example. Right. If you normalize that and standardize that stuff, we're all going to look like communist China in the 50s. Yeah. The same haircut and same uniforms. Yeah. You you want a certain degree, I think, in knowledge work of... You know, creative recklessness as long as you're you know managing risk right totally yeah, yeah. the variation is where the value is yeah that's like so uh, apple has a billion dollars and lenovo does not it's right. actually more than a billion it's like trillion or something like that did you just hear recently or did you read or, or see yeah. that microsoft just uh beat out apple in terms of and, yeah i'm value. not surprised i, I kind of don't care anymore so i had microsoft stock and i do i trade options yeah. and so i had a pretty conservative uh, option, uh, you know, covered calls. That basically means somebody sneaky could buy them away from me and I would lose my Microsoft. I would be forced to sell it. Yeah. And if you know what it is now, it's like a hundred something dollars. Yeah. Well, I lost it at sixty-seven fifty, and uh, and that was a very conservative position. But man, they just—I don't know how they basically. 45 or 48 dollars to 100 something in less than a year so yeah, microsoft's th- doing something right i think it's the surface pro yeah honestly yes and the peripherals are selling around it i just switched we were just talking about this before <coughs> we, we got on the on the podcast yeah and, you know we were talking about breaking up with apple but i, I yeah. think apple has declined in innovation and Absolutely. microsoft has climbed absolutely uh so i know two two things um one on both sides of that uh 
that I, I think illustrate this. Um, and that it's it, and I would suggest that there's certain agile practices that would support both of those or, or fix both of those. So on the Apple side, um, when they announced that they acquired Beats, I knew that it was over. Because what would Apple be doing buying a, uh, a lifestyle brand? Like, why would they need to do that? Unless there was some type of patent that, you know, I'm not a patent researcher, but is there some kind of patent in sound? Which I seriously doubt that Dolby did not have it and Beats did. Right. So they were, they were acquiring a customer base, most likely. And, and if, if Apple couldn't come up with something else to do with its billions of dollars offshore, like nothing, nothing that works better than anybody else or nothing that was easier to use or cutting the cost of their phones or something like that. Not, not the price, but the cost, right. something like nothing, nothing like that. The best thing they could do was acquire some, uh, you know, lifestyle branded, not very proprietary sound technology. Right. You know, it's yeah. probably like white labeled is it meaning it's probably like hardware made by a company. Right. That Beats put its label on, right. most likely. There's Which is anti-Apple. Yeah, there was certainly no Dolby. They, they take a tremendous amount of pride. I've totally. read several books on this. Yes. About their manufacturing process and how they source the materials. And their design. Very and meticulous. And you know, they've searched for for years on just the glass they use on yes. their phones. You know? So why are they going out and buying this already prefabricated set of hardware? And, 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 and like the question, what would uh, uh, Steve Jobs do? Right. For example, he would he would throw whatever he was holding at the person who suggested acquiring Beats to improve their position. Right. He he'd be saying, "You still have that damn button on the iPhone. Why are you talking about buying some kind of headphones?" Right. You know? Yeah. So anyway, Beats also had plugs. You know, so I mean, yeah. it, it was so off track, and it was obvious they are going to start to lose their position. Yeah. And we see today. Um, Anyway, but uh, so sorry to digress. Hand, I just yeah, but no, seriously, yeah. that's it's, it's a good thing. So so like, why did they go down that path? Is it would be interesting to think about. And then on the other hand, so you look at Microsoft, which is like, if you have a computer in the world in 1995, 2005, it has Microsoft on it. Yep, it runs Microsoft. Right. Even today, it still probably does, unless it's a phone. But even phones, still, a lot of them have Microsoft on there somewhere. And, uh, but why were they so lame? Like the, you know, Vista or whatever. I didn't, I wasn't even using it by that time. Yeah. But it was like, looked, looked bad. It didn't work so well. And it yeah. looked like it was trying to catch up to some kind of Apple feature. Right. But it, you know, whatever. Unless you played games. I think gamers obviously just love Windows. But yep. otherwise, it sucked. But now it doesn't. And so there's a couple of things I noticed. One of them was um, the development in Windows Mobile, which was starting from scratch. Yep. So think of super legacy company, billions of users in the world, let alone how many people are working there to support that stuff, right? right. And in like 10 years of operating systems all being supported at the same time. Yeah. You know, all those versions. Yeah. They had that kind of stuff going on where Windows Mobile didn't exist. So they, they made something. And with the tiles and, and that sort of UI, yeah. the flat UI, that yeah. I noticed Johnny Ives copying. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed UI innovation on Windows Mobile that 
Apple started to do. Right. That was shocking to me. Yep. And I know a little bit about the mobile team and some people who were working there. And um, that stuff and the, uh, what do you call it, uh, Office 365, right. Office, uh, which is the web-based Windows, right. um, the UI was actually quite similar. And they started to synchronize that stuff. Yeah. And I know they synchronized earlier than Apple did with their stuff. The reason I bought an iPad is because I could use Office 365 in the browser on an iPad and successfully work with Excel. Right. Apple they had nothing native to the iPad that would be worthwhile. Right. So, so they were innovating in areas that addressed real problems for people. They made work easier to do. And how were they able to do that after many years of being like at least number two in, in usability and attractiveness as far as a product, probably lower than that. And Apple was like by far number one. And how it, it, are they switching positions now? Yeah. Well, it, it always seemed to me that Apple took the position of, or at least <clears throat> Jobs did, of creating things that people didn't know they wanted. Yes. You know, whereas Microsoft took a different approach, which was, we're going to create things that we know people need. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, you know, in that long, you know, <laughs> multi-decade game. Yeah. Um, plus, leaving, you know, losing jobs, losing their chief designer di- didn't help at all. Yeah. I, you know? I, I think that, so. I um, haven't introduced this topic, but the, the within the Kanban method um, or within Kanban, I should say, as a, as a topic, this is a capital K Kanban, like a. It's like a thing, not just like Toyota system uses Kanban systems. Right. But Kanban method is is, is applying this to knowledge work. Um, anyway, within that, there's um, there's been quite a bit of development in the last five years. A little bit more than that, but the last five years have been significant improvement and, and, and development and expansion of all this stuff. One of the current things right now is the maturity model. And so I mentioned the CMMI yeah, five things. So that's that's like um, uh, uh, there, there's there's levels of capability maturity with that. So like a, a low maturity organization is not capable of achieving a lot or being reliable. High maturity organization is is capable of uh, very reliable results and even like really good results. Um, <coughs> some other things. Especially related to software, because that's mm-hmm. what it's all about. Uh, the Kanban maturity model is similar in concept, um, but the way it's designed or structured is for every maturity level, there's defined level of outcomes. Meaning uh, if you are at maturity level one, for example, you can achieve these kinds of outcomes. Right. Whereas level three, it's significantly better outcomes. So does that impact how projects are dispersed throughout an organization based on a team's maturity level so you have a higher level of predictability yeah the goal the goal is for all of them to to mature to, to right. reach higher in any maturity model that would be the goal is to it be to it sort of define what kinds of things do you need to work on so that you could uh, increase the maturity of the the organization whether that's a whole company or a team or right. like a department the organizational boundary is sort of right. arbitrary where you draw the line. Yeah. 
And um, so within the maturity, the Kanban maturity model, there's three, there's three parts. So there's the, um, the, the outcomes. So like maturity level three is defined as you're, you're fit for purpose. So meaning customers want something from you, the service that you're providing, and you can deliver it reliable. Right. You may have to sacrifice quite a bit, but you, you're still pulling it off. Right. So it's like barely getting the football over the first yard line and you're like filling your mask full of mud and, and you're, you twisted an ankle. Yeah. But at least you got the first. Like down. you clawed and yeah. bit, did whatever you had to do. Yeah. But yeah. that's like level three. You know, most of the time that you don't have to sacrifice yourself. But, but the thing is, most likely you still will be because you're not quantitatively managing stuff. <laughs> so level, level zero is nobody's even really thinking about management. No one's really thinking about how should we be doing stuff. Yeah. Um, level uh, one, level two is the beginnings of understanding what what should we be managing. What seems to matter as far as like paying attention to this stuff, avoiding that kind of stuff. Right. Um, up to level three, which is where you're, you're in enough control of what's going on. You, you can see what's happening clearly enough. And in knowledge work, that's not very easy to do, So to see visible knowledge work. Right. So does that have to do with, um, you said, you know, what, what to focus on and what not to pay attention to? Is that, mm -hmm. does that a similar concept to reducing waste? Yeah. Is that a um, different concept? Which I, I want to, let me get back to that okay, in a second. Sure. Because um, uh, it's it's definitely involved, but with it from the Kanban perspective, we have a we have a different set of priorities. Right. Uh, but so level four, the difference between three and there's six, seven total levels, zero to six. Yeah. And level four is um, uh, the difference between three and four is the amount of quantitative management. So level three could be predominantly just qualitatively managing things. Like you can yep. see stuff is late, so you do something about it. Um, but once you get to the point where you have enough um, clearly, explicitly defined policies, for example, when does something start? Uh, what what in a Scrum context they would call it definition of done, right? Or even acceptance criteria for the work. Those kinds of or things. Definition of ready. Definition of ready. ready. Yeah. When that stuff is defined, or yep. like when when um, what standard does something have to meet before you're ready to say this is finished? Right. Like let's say if it's an, uh, an, an uh, graphic design for some kind of ad campaign, what is the what is the standard it has to meet? Whatever. When that stuff's explicit and it's clear, and then especially all the steps in the workflow. If that's very clearly mapped out and people are, there's no vague decision about should I continue to work on this or can I let it slip, you know, slide or uh, uh, stand idle for a while while I focus on this other stuff that has to be done by a date uh, deadline. Right. When people are able to do that reliably at level three, then you can start to um, instrument that and, and gather metrics that enable you to have very reliable probabilistic forecasts. Right. And so what that means is if somebody asks you, how long will this take? You can give them an answer. Or right. when will this be done? You can give them an answer. Or how much will this cost? You'll give them an answer. And you'll probably be right. Right. Like at high probability. Which is a, a huge difference from the way that people used to uh, work, plan yeah. and execute work, right? Yeah. Everybody back in the day used to give time estimates. Yeah. And they weren't really worth shit. 
Yeah. It was arbitrary, right? Yeah. I think this project's going to take us two years and we need $20 million. Yeah. Right? Nine, 99% of the time, it took probably longer. Yeah. And they blew out the budget. Yeah. And for a lot of reasons. Right. And, and none of the reasons are bad. Right. I mean, well, that's not true. Some of them were bad. Some of them were uh, fundamentally wrong because they were trying to predict stuff that they had no idea. Right. So they're estimating something. They didn't even know what they were talking about yet. Right. But the other part is, you know, they get started and, and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. So let's say you start working on something and because you're working on it, you realize stuff. Yep. But you didn't know that before you got started. So just getting started, you realize you could be doing something better. If you don't, and if you stick with the original plan so that your budget and your scope and all that are, are the way you said it should be in the plan, that's negligence. Right. Because you know you're not doing the best stuff. Right. But that's how we used to manage and that's why everybody went bankrupt and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Is that is that similar to a concept I'm familiar with, which is called progressive elaboration? Yes. Okay. The, um, the, you can't imagine something that doesn't exist fully. You can imagine this concept or have like a vague vision or at least a direction. You know, those kinds of terms are not very specific. Yeah. But I'm actually describing something that's like it's it's impo the impossibility of being specific about something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. So given that that's true, you can just decide what's the direction and then ultimately what do we want out of this? And then let's define at least what is the immediate stuff we can do that will get us closer. Right. In the concept of like driving at night, you can't see anything outside of the reach of your headlights. But you can drive closer to stuff so your headlights are shining on it. Right. So then you can see it. Right. And so, you know, you don't want to drive faster than the speed of light in the dark. Right. Because you'll crash into stuff. Right. Luckily, we can't do that. But because the, your lights will always be in front of you a little bit, you can drive 70 miles per hour with, in an area with, you know, in the middle of the desert. I used to do this all the time. Yeah. Drive super fast on these roads. It may be maybe a Kirby Mountain Road, but you got your headlights in front of you always. Yeah. So you're fine. Doesn't matter what's a mile in, the, in, in front of you. Right. Because you're not there yet. Right. You're focused on what's in front of you. Yeah. And so well, you can that see. progressive elaboration is, is possible because you've made some steps forward. Right. And now you have hindsight. And this is the way I like to put it, is you have hindsight because you've done stuff. You have experience. You can update your plan. You can change your plan. You can understand what you're thinking in better and more accurate, precise terms. Especially you and the other people you're working with or you and the customer are now both able to talk about something that's actually tangible or practical. Yeah. Whereas before it was just, you know, my imagination and my limited ability to describe it, trying to get your imagination to understand what I'm trying to say, that's pretty much impossible. Yeah. That's a really good example. I think that's a really good metaphor because the other thing I was thinking about while you were telling me that in describing kind of driving through like a windy mountain road with your mm -hmm. lights and just you can only focus on what your lights can see yeah and that's what you should be focused yeah. on yeah. right you don't know or care about what is a mile down the road yeah but if you encounter during that drive and there's a boulder in the middle yeah. of the road yeah there's 
a higher chance of probability there there may be a circumstance where you hit another boulder in the road up the yeah. road. Yeah. So now you factor those into you know your 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 driving approach, yes. whatever that is. Maybe Absolutely. you slow down. Maybe you're more cognizant of it. Totally. Right. Both hands in the wheel. No coffee. Right. You know? Exactly. Oh um, wait, there's some danger here. I wasn't aware of. Um, two miles back. Exactly. And and so for example, with the boulder metaphor, where did the boulder come from? Uh, uh, which side of the road is it on? Well, maybe it's on one side of the road, but obviously it didn't roll uphill. Right. It came from the hill. So. <laughs> Which side of the road is the hill? Yep. But you know, some boulders can roll across the road. But 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 so you don't know exactly where the boulder is going to be, but you know near the hill, right. somewhere along the road where there's a hill is where there might be a boulder in right. the future. So in the future, when you're driving along the hills, that that's that's uh, based on your history. You know, there's a chance that there will be a boulder here. Yep. But if you're driving on like a bridge over the water, it's probably not going to be a boulder on the road. Right. You know, right. so yeah. so you can factor in uh, based on your experience. Yep. And you know, with that I mentioned level four quantitative stuff, like you, you get uh, uh, statistical stuff, which is very simple statistics. Yep. But, but you get that kind of stuff, and then you just know like what's the probability of this stuff happening. And that's all based on. You know, and, and I'm familiar with this term as well, and I'm not sure how it applies. And but it seems like the same concept of you know empirical evidence. Yes. Right. Yeah. All this stuff is really based on that's, empirical. That's data. That's another way of saying hindsight, but that's exactly what it is: empirical evidence. Yep. So uh, when I mentioned like being able to answer like how long is it going to take, or you know uh, when will it be done, that's not based on an estimation; it's based on empirical evidence. Right. Historical information. Right. So an estimation is imagining and guessing, and, and, and it's mostly imagining. What am What am I going to have to do to finish this work? And uh, how hard would that be? And might maybe something else will disrupt me and slow me down, or or I'll really enjoy this, so I'll get it done quickly. Right. That's all speculation. All of it. Even if you like, you really know the work. It's your industry and your domain. It's still speculation. Right. Whereas if you have historical data on the stuff, there is no speculation. It's, right. it's based on probability. And salespeople understand this stuff because you can go into a sales office that has good training and ask them how many phone calls do you have to make to make a sale? And they'll tell you the number. Right. And the number is not right. It's, the, the, it's a probability distribution, and they're picking one of the numbers. So maybe it's the average which it probably isn't. It's probably the 85th percentile, 75th percentile right. of like, when I make 100 calls, one of them turns out to be a sale. I just have to make 100 calls to get a sale. They know that kind of stuff. Well, this same principle, the same math applies to pretty much all knowledge work. Right. So if it's like, how long does it take to like build this software system? Or how long does it take to build this feature? Or when it comes to any kind of knowledge work, like how long does it take to do this legal brief? Or how long does it take to, or how long is it worth it to be spending on investigating a new technology in, in right. Silicon Valley, for example? Um, the, the trick in order for, the, for the, the math to work and for the statistics to be relevant is you have to identify uh, the type of work and differentiate that and separate those. So, for example, if I do 
500 different things a day, like different kinds of things, like a, write an email over here or like, you know, write some code over here or, um, uh, you know, design, a, uh, design a, a, the look and feel of something. All those different kinds of things. Um, and average all of that together and how long did it take? Well, some emails I deleted immediately without reading. That right. took less than a second. Yep. Some things uh, I was in a debate with the designer for four hours right. and we're still not done. So averaging those two things together is a meaningless number. Right. But if you can take the work and separate it into like similar work, that's actually it turns out to be good enough. Right. So, uh, like in the software industry, that people can think in terms of like bugs or like change changes, like an enhancement. Uh, that's a start. But there's different kinds of bugs. And already, if you're like in the support world, you know there's like uh, tier one, two, and three type of support. Some bugs might be like mission critical. Some bugs have to go through a change request uh, or change management board to, right. to to push publish live. Yep. Some bugs, um, you have no idea what the cause is. Some bugs, you know exactly what the cause is. So they're not always the same. Right. And so if you can group those, then you realize, well, bugs that require change management board, um, they tend to take this many days or, or less. Right. Whereas bugs that are like a misspelling take this many hours or less. Right. And it can be the same thing with like um, we have to process insurance claims. And so insurance claims related to uh, property that is owned by a third party usually take an extra two weeks. Right. Whereas insurance claims that are related to something that we can look up in a table and make a, a payment, uh, uh, whatever they call those insurance payments, yeah. uh, settlement. We can, we can make a settlement without you know, worrying too much about opportunity loss. Just, just look it up. How much is a fender cost? Right. Just give them the money. Right. Those take four hours usually. So the, the so what I'm getting out of this, the key kind of takeaway for me is, mm. it, there's really no value when, when you're when you're, you're looking at the data and, and you know trying to give. You know, I'm sitting here. Say you're, you're my boss, and mm -hmm. you're to come to me and say, "How long is this going to take?" The data I want to look at is looking at things that of are of are similar. Mm -hmm. types of yes. work right and, and, and empirical and, and, evidence around this particular type of work but it doesn't make sense for me to compare so you need to almost compartmentalize yes the I call it differentiate differentiate the types of work that yeah. you're doing that's actually what I, I would consider to be a manager's job if they're not going to estimate anymore right so this whole concept of like no estimates right. or not estimating if you're not going to estimate which is a tremendous amount of effort but if you're not going to do that then instead, people can spend their time on analyzing, first of all, analyzing the, the data on you know, how long it takes. It's measured in lead time. Right. But looking at that and, and seeing, is this bimodal data? Meaning, is, is, is it inconclusive because it's too noisy? Yeah. That means you, you should probably split something out of it. Right. Um, and, and then uh, thinking in terms of like, do these, this, this, this one type of work, does it always follow the same workflow or right. sometimes are there exceptions? Exceptions that we can kind of count on. There's a pattern. Yeah. Maybe split those into two different types. Yeah. And makes... then if you're doing that, there's all sorts of other Kanban practices you can apply to, uh, to improve the lead times or at least reduce the risk 
of things taking longer than they normally should. Yeah. This is <clears throat> it's it's really fascinating to me again because I've been focused so much over the last 10 12 years now on scrub. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. starting to get more acclimated with with combine and you know you came in as a consultant to yeah. Sony Pictures to help um, not only us the other coaches that weren't as familiar mm. in in combine practices and principles and all of that but also to work with our senior management or executive yeah. level. Right? Yes. So yeah. from our, I think CEO, CFO, CIO, um, or C level guys, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. um, to help them, um, not only understand some of the benefits of this way of planning and, and executing work and the projects they're, they're selecting to yeah. put, Millions, some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars behind. Yeah, you know it's a big company. Yeah, I looked at the numbers actually in the last week. Some of some of the projects are huge, huge, right? So, you know, not only to help understand that, but also be able to get behind it. um, So their direct reports, their manager, you know, their executive vice president, senior vice president, VP level down starts to work that way as well yeah it gets into kind of that mindset so you might spend a few minutes talking about that from a from more of a you know where do you start yeah you know yeah where do you start this where do you start <laughs> so our kanban answer is start with what you do now we have some change management principles and you know i i said that somewhat facetiously but it but it but it's, it's actually real but i want to uh, just mention so last November, so last month, I went to, to Europe and I was at the Kanban conference and I was talking about the maturity model. I'm involved in developing the cultural dimension of that, which is mostly leader, leadership guidance. Like, right. What do they do to get people to adopt these new practices? Um, but the funny thing was um, there was a scrum gathering the following day, the local one in Hamburg, and their keynote speaker called in sick. 4 p.m. the night before. So they asked, like, who can do it? And, and they asked me if I would do it. And I'm like, sure. So, me, of all people, who gave a keynote at the Scrum Gathering. It's, I think it was the first one they had there. You know, it's the local one in northern Germany, not, not in Berlin. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I took a deck that I had used at another Agile, we call it Agile Camp in San Jose. And I deleted three terms of Kanban out of the deck, and the rest was okay. I could leave it like that. Because I wasn't going to stand up there and talk about Kanban at the start of a Scrum conference. I thought that would be very <laughs> insulting. Um, but anyway, the, 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 the gist of it, the reason why I was able to use that deck is it was kind of universal. The topic they wanted to explore is, you know, where's the ceiling with Scrum? Like, why, is, why isn't it being adopted? Why does it get squelched? by right. organizations and um, my answer to that is it's middle management right. and it's actually middle management is they actually have veto power in transformations right. meaning if they're not interested if they don't believe in what you're trying to implement they can stop it right. CEOs cannot force stuff on people right. they, they're, they're unable to do that and it's unrealistic to think you get executive buy-in and everything's going to work out because that never happens. Yeah, we have executive buy-in. Yeah, buy-in is not not nearly enough. And I, I'm a certified change management professional. I was a founding member of the ACMP, the American Change Management Pro- Association of Change Management Professionals. Yeah. I, I quit it. I don't. I'm not involved because 
Because the whole concept of like, let's design a complex system and then try to implement it. I never succeeded with that. And I don't know anybody who ever has. It doesn't yeah. work. It's yeah. huge impedance, plenty of work for consultants, right. but it's not a successful pattern. So anyway, uh, what I learned was, because we were really big on sponsorship and executive sponsors and developing all that kind of stuff, but that never worked. And it's the middle management. And it's not just that they're like ornery and don't like change or, or like are selfish and, and have like a vendettas. They're not stuck in their ways as much as people think they may be. Yeah, they're actually nobody's stuck in their way. So here, here's the thing. It's like um, I like my favorite dish. But let's say there's a better tasting one as far as I'm concerned. I'm probably going to eat it. Or like... Um, um, I'm pretty happy, but there's something I could do and I'll be happier. Probably going to do that. So people change all the time. It's actually the reason why people buy stuff they don't need. That's All of the stuff you buy is changing your life in some way. Right. Upgrading to a new phone. You know, Installing the latest version of the software on your iOS. That's, that's a change. Everybody goes for change all the time. Marriages has changed. People willfully go in. Divorces change. People willfully do that. So people change all the time. It's not true they don't like change. They don't like losing stuff. So the middle management have a lot to lose because their position is very, very tenuous. It's like there's not really – how do you know a middle manager is doing a good job? It's very hard to answer that question. Because there's no method for them. All they have is politics, essentially. There's no method for middle management. Kanban method has answers for them. Right. But without that, you know, I got an MBA. I studied leadership and management for a long time. I worked at a leadership school for 10 years. You know, I, 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 there's not a lot of guidance. Yeah. There, there's ideas and principles. But specifically, how do you middle manage? There's not much. So they're relying on politics. It's all brokering deals. It's like learning information, trying to give it to the right people, trying to keep it from the wrong people. And they could lose it very quickly. Right. And, and the best they can hope for is nobody blames them for the problems that are existing everywhere. It's the right. best they can hope for. And so if you have some methodology like Agile, Kanban, or pretty much all of these new ways of working that all talk about transparency, it's the last thing those people want. It, 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 that's what I found. It threatens. It is very threatening. It's yes. threatening. Yeah. Because it tends to surface, again, the waste. It tends, yes. When you, when you have an organization that is that transparent, mm. the people that aren't effective or doing things to contribute becomes that much more visible as well totally right totally so what's unfair in in this was probably what would happen would be to instantly blame them for look at how bad a job you're doing nobody knew what was happening until it got you know what we would call like you model a workflow and define the types of work and you know right. start measuring capability like all basically any any kind of management practices to get more transparency before that nobody knew so just because now you know, it's not like you can say, oh, I always knew this guy was no good. Nobody did. Right. Now that you do, you should change. But you know, it's, it, it would be unreasonable to fire all the middle managers. Right. And here's some job security to you middle managers out there when this stuff happens. Nobody has relationships in the network of relationships throughout the company that a middle manager has. The only reason they are a middle manager is because they're the ones with those relationships. 
so they can't be fired. Right. They usually it's usually the, the senior leadership to get fired. Right. Usually middle managers don't. Like we go through Congress and our president, but all the bureaucrats they don't lose their job. They're just there. You know, right. if they all left, no one would know how to run the federal government at all. And corporations are not much different. Yeah. Right? yeah so they have sense. job security even when you start shining a light on people. What's dangerous is if you put transparency on you, but your adversary has zero transparency. Right. Then that's that's not a good thing. So that's that there are some things to watch out for. But um, so the thing about where to start. So given the condition of like this whole like potentially very thick or deep uh, layers of middle managers, there might be quite a, a few of them. Given that condition and, and that problem, our advice is, to, like I was saying, start with what you do now. This right. is the Kanban change principle. And so what that means is understand how things work. So transparency, yeah. Um, you know, transparency, model the workflow. And that's not the same thing as value stream mapping at all, actually. It's, it's, um, it's definitely not in terms of what things should be like or, or you know, trying to find out how long different things take and then like snip out the waste. That's what va value stream mapping would be. Right, right. We're not concerned about that in the beginning. In fact, you mentioned waste. Waste would be on an agenda for Kanban to tackle. But not first. Right. Definitely not first. It's actually third. First, we want to get rid of overburden. And Toyota would call that moody, overburden or unreasonableness. Right. And that's basically like way too many things being committed to and nothing getting done. Right. So first, we want to find out how does work happen? <coughs> actually, not what it says in the manual, not what the PMO says happens, what actually happens. Right. And then what's the actual work people are doing? What's different about those things? And then what's the actual status right now? And how does work flow through that system? And when you can see all that stuff, then you can start to apply things that eventually give you give a manager control of the capacity that they've got. Right. And we don't define capacity as in how many people times hours. It's capacity is number of work items. That's why we visualize. Because you can't really control what a human, uh, human capital capacity. No one's really in control of that. Because you know, like you have a person working on something at a second, you don't have two people now. You didn't double your, your thinking power or your knowledge worker power. In fact, the studies in IT at least show adding people to a late project makes it later. This is like a statistically significant finding right. that you can't just add bodies. It's not like it's not a linear improvement in throughput. So given that, what you can do for controlling capacity is you define how many work items will we tolerate at the same time. It's like thinking of juggling. I can juggle five oranges. I can't do six without dropping them periodically. Right. And four is really easy. So what's the right number? That's We define capacity as number of work items. Totally in the manager's control. Yep. And if you do that, you have it 
you'll you'll get a tremendous amount of uh, predictability, which means you can make more reliable forecasts, which means you're going to be the manager everybody in the company knows they can rely on, even if you have a crappy team. Right. And like in the beginning, I was talking about this Microsoft team that was like CMMI level five, like the Navy SEALs of the software team had the worst performance. They actually went to the best team in all of Microsoft. This is in like Microsoft's literature. They went from the worst to the best in a matter of months by implementing the Kanban method. And all they did was same people, same work, same requests, same customers, same workflow more or less they just put some policies on it the managers changed essentially the expectations and the rules of how they treated the work and so they had like a, a typical lead time on really it was like three types of work really 155 days to 11 days and they negotiated for 30 days because sometimes things would take a little longer right and they didn't have to do any more estimations um, always on time. Customers were totally happy. Uh, they had, yeah, there's all sorts of benefits from it. Sure. And all, it was very, very simple. And mostly started with the transparency, which is what's actually happening with the work. Not how good they're doing or how bad they're doing. It's more like what's actually happening. And when we get a request, what do we do with it? Right. Until it's done. Or a new project is greenlit. Yeah. Yeah. From from there forward, what, how does that work flow? Yeah. All the way through, and based yeah. on what we have going on. So I, honestly, I want to tackle also at least where I'm currently working is how does stuff get greenlit? Right. That that to me is another. That's a whole yeah, other, other conversation. That's, that's yeah. A, but it, but a very interesting one. So we'll have yeah, you back yeah. on at some point yeah. to talk about that because yeah yeah you know that that's to me that's. Um, so starting with what you do now yeah and and figuring out what it is and then when you see it you can start making changes but you don't start with here's the right way to do things so you should start doing it this way that's that's basically the main contrast yeah our approach is we know we can't tell you what the right system is because you have a context right that's unique so what we do know is there are many specific practices that can independently be used. You don't have to use all of them right? by any means. You can't actually. Some of them are mutually exclusive. But we have a lot of practices identified. And so when you understand and, and you can clearly visibly see this is what the work is and how the work works, then you can apply some of these practices to improve things by very simple metrics. It's uh, it's interesting because, you know, I've been working, as you know, um, over at Sony with mainly the finance yeah. uh, department, right? So I've been applying a lot of these principles and, and techniques and practices to finance teams, which mm. is completely different. But the same principles apply. It's been very yes. effective. Yeah. And I think we've had some good success there. But how would you apply this, you know, outside of, and you've alluded to it several times, but like outside of... IT or software mm-hmm. development, which is to me, uh, well, I think more of a natural fit for like the Scrum framework, right? Right. But for Kanban, so say say somebody is, um, you know, stepping into a role as a director or a VP of human resources, mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. There's all these projects that are already in play. Um, they have a team. They're tasked with, you know, not only the, the, the people portion of it, but then they have, you know, organizational change, things like yeah, that. Yeah. But they also have systems and HR, you know, back office systems. Transactional so there's stuff. all kinds of transactional stuff yeah. that needs to, they, they, they are tasked with strategically yeah. implementing. Yeah. What would be your advice from someone that's to, to stepping into an organization that's like, you know, not familiar with Agile or these concepts or Kanban in particular? Uh, so uh, wait a few months and buy a new book that's not out yet. And it would be the second edition of the Kanban Maturity Model um, book. That will give you specific things to do. Yeah. But that would be without the context. Of in the, For example, they need to be educated so they adopt a new mindset. Right. So a book for that I would recommend is called Kanban from the Inside by Mike Burroughs. And that's available on the, the Lean Kanban University website or directly from uh, uh, Amazon also. I'm pretty sure it's there. That's a, a book that um, I, I've recommended to plenty of uh, people who are not in the software. They, even if they are like a manager within the software industry, they are not an engineer and they... They never learned Agile, right. but they read that book and they know exactly what it says. They right. understand it. Sure. Um, most of the Agile-related stuff is not made for VPs and right. directors. It, it doesn't really speak to them at all. And uh, the agenda is different for those people than for uh, especially people who, what I call like they're in the specialist layers of, of work, meaning... It's domain specific. It's craftsmanship oriented. So, like software development could be, uh, 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 you know, pipeline design, you process know. reengineering. Yeah, process reengineering. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, supply chain management, purchasing, right. uh, whatever. It's like if you you know you work there ten years, you're you're like way better. Whereas um, what I would consider the layer of management above that, I consider general management. Uh, if you are a general manager at GE, you could go to a completely different industry, like let's say Sony Pictures Entertainment, like not the NBC division, but like the jet engine division. Right. If you're a general manager there, you go to SPE and thrive because those are very transferable skills. Right. Management is still management. Right. I think at the senior level, like the strategic level or layers of management, you do need domain experience again because you have to make the choice of like, what should we do? Right. So you need to know the market. Yeah. Um, but the middle guys, that's very transferable knowledge. And I think that's one reason why nobody's teaching it because uh, most people get domain experience and they, they, the consultants or the trainers want to say, here's how you do your job. Whereas nobody's figured out how to do manual management, so no one's got any like general stuff to say. Um, that's 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 a you know I might make a blog post about that someday. Yeah. But so so the thing is so like this is the VP or director of HR and what should they do? Um, the first is to try to figure out so what's all the stuff going on, and uh, you know typically visualizing stuff is an easy place to start. And by visualizing work, uh, they probably have, you know, there's some dashboard somewhere or there's like a Gantt chart or, or like a, a spreadsheet or even a PowerPoint with just stuff listed in it or someone prints it and gives it to them. And that's not quite the same thing 
as um, being able to see all of the work at the same time. And, and then the question for someone like that would be, to me, at what level of abstraction? So am I talking about like the tasks, like breaking it down to the tasks that take an hour? Or we're talking about like the year and a half long project? So is this like, are you trying to manage what you're doing today? Or are you trying to manage like a portfolio of all of the, the budgeted you know, major projects and budget yeah, lines? Yeah, it would be more a, a portfolio at that level. Yeah, well, yeah. They, they could do both because yeah. they, they may be curious, like, what should I be doing or what should my, my, my close team be working on today? Right. But if they're thinking about, like, what is my department working on, it's definitely at the portfolio level. Yeah. And, uh, and so in that case, uh, you know, so this is something that we do is uh, – Start with write down the what is the work on a card or a sticky note yeah. of some sort, and do that with at least all the stuff that matters the most. And then, so that's just what is the work itself. Get the lay of the land. Yeah. So, for example, you can count. There's 25 or there's 27 of them, and out of the 27, six of them are one of these and or this type of stuff, and then 16 are this other type of stuff. So, what's our portfolio spread? Right. That might be documented somewhere. It probably is, but just getting it all, let's say on a table surface or on a wall where you can see it all at the same time. And then uh, start organizing it by um, its uh, status in the workflow. Now, a software team has a workflow that pretty much all work goes through and the people all do the same stuff. At a portfolio level, there's a huge amount of variety in the workflows of all the different kinds of work that goes through there. Right. You can still very easily divide it up into three sections. Like we haven't started it yet. We've started it and we're not done yet. And then we finished it. Right. Three, three groups very easily. And early application of uh, modeling a workflow in the purpose of that would be to show the work item and its status in relation or uh, relative to the other work items. Like this one's more done than that one. Right. This one's closer to being completed than that one. <clears throat> is you just make that middle section, you think of it as a column, make that one wide. And so as it moves from left to right, let's say, you know, it enters that column from like outside because right. you decided to start it. And it did officially start. Like people are actually putting work into it. However, you define that start, right. and uh, you can as it move as it gets completed, you move it closer to that finish line. And so, at first, you just can spread it out and see, you know, which stuff is mostly or close to being done, which stuff is not close to being done. And then that would be a horizontal axis. For uh, another nice thing to do on a vertical axis is um, uh, the amount of budget that has been spent. So um, in that wide column, stuff down in the bottom has spent very little of its allotted budget, its budget allocation. Stuff near the top of it has spent most of it. And, you know, divided into halves or thirds or quarters. So, you know, spent 25% or less or 25% or more, but less than 50%. Doesn't need to be precise. Right. Because it's all really relative. Right. You probably have specific numbers somewhere that are actually not even true anyway because it's financial accounting. It's never actually true. It's all abstraction. Yeah. So, uh, and you already have that. And looking at tables of that 
doesn't tell you what this visualization would, which is if you look at a, a, essentially it's two axes, axes, the percent completion and percent budget spent. So how much time is left and how much money is left, essentially. Uh, you can see the difference between some work that's like almost done and has a lot of unspent budget that was allocated to it. And then on the opposite corner, in the upper left it would be, most of the money's already spent and there's still a whole lot of work left to do. So there's some serious risk going on. Yeah. So the risk decreases from the top left to the bottom right. Yeah. Yeah. As, like, as the work gets closer and closer to being done, is the rate of like climbing up, like spending, is that going too fast right. considering how fast it would be to uh, finish? And so what would that tell a person managing a portfolio like that? Well, it could tell them, I could probably spend less money and less of my effort and worry less on the lower right stuff and then allocate money and maybe capacity or teams or uh, or something to the upper right. I mean, sorry, the upper left. So the stuff that's like running out of money and not being done yet, I can see where my opportunities to shift my budget are. Right. Before the projects are even done. Right. Like you don't even need to wait that long. And once again, you can look through all the tables you want and find this stuff. And you can. And I'm talking with somebody where you're working right now about, you know, they have all this information. Thing is, it's hard to see it because when it's all spread out like this and it's all there, the thing is, you can look at a detail. You can look at one project and its budget that's been spent and how long it's got left. And. And another completely different one might even be a completely different budget line, a completely different department, and you can see them at the same time. Right. And you can like go from seeing the big picture to seeing a detail in less than a second while anyone else you want in the room to also be seeing exactly the same thing as you are. And that's very powerful. It's very powerful. You know, the other... Is there a way to add, I'm going to get into the kind of the next step from there. Yeah. So I see where you're going with this, which I think doing that alone, mm -hmm. you can make some well-informed decisions. Yeah. Right one, there. The one I but mentioned what about was the value, the yeah. value proposition mm -hmm. of, of each of these. How does that play into it? So I mean the value I, of each of the items? Yeah. So say, say the, the value to the organization, say I have, uh, you know, 20 projects in my portfolio, yeah. right? And I've got a couple that are up here <laughs> in the top um, top left of that middle column mm -hmm. work in progress, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. And then I've got several down on the lower right. I'm like, oh, here's some quick wins, right? Mm -hmm. I, or yeah. these, these are easy. I can reallocate some resources, yeah, yeah. right? And then you have to make a determination of where do I put those resources in these three or four projects that are behind schedule and over budget. So how does... You know, value to the organization coming to play in that prioritization. That's a um, that's a very important question, and what I described so far doesn't doesn't actually touch on value. Right. So that right. would have to be another thing, another dimension to as we refer to them as usually risk dimensions. Right. Because um, you know, get to that, but uh, that would be another thing to try to visualize in some way. And and, and there's. Basically, two ways within Kanban to visualize stuff. One is either on the ticket. I mentioned writing the name of the project like the on a sticky note, note yeah. or whatever. That's the ticket. In a digital system like Trello or Jira, it's the card or the issue or whatever, whatever they call it. But right. it's 
It's a little square with right. a word on it. Yeah. That's yeah. the ticket. And then the other would be the board. Right. So whatever, you know, if it's a tabletop or a wall or whatever, there's going to be columns, which means there'll be lines. Yep. So boards are made of lines, yep. vertical and horizontal lines. Yep. So basically you have tickets and you can make different colors and things like that. And then you have boards, which you can arrange lines in different ways. Right. Make it not a graph or a chart, but a, you know. Yeah, uh, a board. <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, uh, yeah. So to to put a value dimension in there too. Well, first of all, um, uh, regarding value, the caution that we would say is uh, be careful of saying what something's value is. Right. That's very hard to do. And actually, guess where you know. Guess who knows what the value of something is? The beholder. Right. Or the customer. Basically, value is subjective. So how valuable something is, uh, the receiver or the one who makes the request, they're the one who gets to decide that. Um, when there's many, many customers involved, many transactions involved, and it's really large, it's that becomes super complicated. Right. So definitely budget has nothing to do with value. It has something to do with profit, but not really value. So if that's vague and unclear, that's a whole nother set of practices that we would implement. But that's a whole nother conversation. And that's a leader's job so, is to, to define what the values are and actually pick the ones that they want to go for. Because a lot of stuff would be valuable to the market, but it's not worth it for you to get involved. So is that because – so if, if I'm making a decision, just going yeah. back to our example, if I've got – Three projects, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to decide where to put resources because mm -hmm. I got those quick wins in the bottom right. Yeah, stuff that be done quickly. Right, right. And you can afford it. And it's going to free up some budget and some people to put yeah. on some of these other ones that are behind mm -hmm. or at risk. So, mm -hmm. if I'm rolling out a new, let's just use our example, an HR system. Yeah, I want to decide. Okay, people soft's the way to go. Yeah, you're migrating and and it got What's to train the value. People. Yeah, some of that is is quanti quantify quantifiable. Yes, is that a word. Yeah, spending. Right, because it creates some operating efficiencies and yep. things like that, right? But some of it's not. Mm -hmm. Satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, uh, How fast the, we're the assumptions about the improved operational efficiency right. are, they, they're, they're quantifiable, but it, they, all the assumptions behind that model could be completely wrong. Right. But the spending, like, you know, it, uh, let's say, uh, 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 human capital management system A cost a million dollars per year and uh, system B cost half a million dollars per year. That one's easy. Right. But um, how much money do you spend on uh, the lag time or the difficulty in use between one system to the other? Right. The salespeople aren't going to give you a brochure with that information in it. Right. So that's actually not very easy to figure out. Right. Um, so people try. And that's how they approve. That's how they make vendor decisions. That's kind of not a good idea. Uh, but anyway, um, I like service-oriented architecture. I like, uh, what do they call it, um, shadow IT. Uh, people using the system that they decide works for them. Right. And then just using APIs to make it work together. And not trying to like, and HR people will love me for this, but not trying to like integrate everything so you can like, drill down into every dollar spent in the company from anywhere. That's the lost cause. It's, I think people spend millions or the economy spends billions of dollars on trying to tackle that and be on top of that stuff. They never are. 
at any moment you could get audited and find out this is all completely wrong and it doesn't matter anyway because that stuff's not the important stuff but everybody's like spending all their time on that right but anyway um so so whether or not like so, so the question of like could we like on this lower right like almost done have a lot of remaining budget should we like accelerate it get it done with or like these things that have spent most of their budget and they're barely even gotten started should we abandon it those kinds of questions partly related to value is right. is, is it worth doing those things so in va- is it worth doing something that means is there a return is profit there's a ROI equation which right. is uh, earnings divided by spendings uh, you know, uh, price versus cost right. divided by cost. So um, the system, the board I'm talking about, can co- that will show you the denominator. Okay. So how much how much spending essentially? Right. Are we are we talking about it? You you where that uh, numerator comes from? That came from has to come from somewhere else. Right. But that could be uh, marked on the cards themselves. Right. And so by color. Um, there, there's a, so if it's on the ticket, the card or the ticket, it's like it's color or you can give it a label like $1 sign or like $15 signs on whatever you're So it's more about relative in the, in the grand scheme of things. It's more about – this is what I'm getting at. Yes. It's more about being able to visualize relative value or, yeah. or return on investment. Yes. So if you took all your highest value projects yeah. and made them red or yeah. green, yeah. right, and then yeah. you took your – mid-layer ones is yellow that will give you that visualization of okay now i have to decide between five projects of how i reallocate three is not a bad one uh, as far as number of levels as opposed to 15 dollar signs versus right, one you know right. like but, but so 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 you can do that but once again the the concept of value is is tricky and so where we usually go with is we we talk in terms of risk right and so like value can be flipped into um uh, loss right so as opposed to gain so, um, like, we could gain this, but if it's late, we're not going to gain as much as we would have. Right. That's not that hard to calculate, at least that rate, or at least know the shape of the curve of a loss. So, if you think in terms of, like, a, a time series, a histogram, uh, the bottom uh, is time, and the vertical axis is uh, how much we have to lose. Right. Or, you know, how much... Are we how much out of any potential gain we would have had gets lost? So the longer something is delayed, the curve goes up. Right. So like if we if we're a day early, we didn't lose anything. If we're on time, we still neutral. A day late, two days late, a hundred days late, three hundred days late, the curve goes up. Right. As far as all the opportunity we're going to lose. So is that the opportunity cost? That's actually called cost of delay. Cost of delay. Okay. Yeah. And so the generally in a Kanban system, uh, what managers will start to do is think in terms of cost of delay, mostly because it's very easy for them to know it if they've been tracking lead time. If you track lead time, you, you know what the impact is of starting now versus starting tomorrow. Or if you do like a monthly release, starting at the next release as opposed to this one. And let's say you have four HR projects to choose from with the team that you have available. They can do four at a time. Which one should we start now? Well, which is the highest value one? 
But let's say if it's the highest value, but we start it and it makes it so we can't do some other stuff. And this highest value one, if we delay it a month, zero impact on our return. Whereas these other lower value things, if we don't do them now, we lose the opportunity altogether. Right. So it's not like do the most the valuable cost of stuff. delay is, is yes. outweighs or starts exactly. to impact the ROI we would get from the higher value project. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would cancel it out. Right. So cost delay is, is is actually pretty easy to 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 calculate at least qualitatively. Yeah. And most of the time that's all I work with with people. They they don't have the sophisticated uh, instrumentation to do the quantitative stuff. Right. That's that exists and you can do that, but most people they're, they're not even able to they don't even know what they're doing all day. Right. But uh, the the other thing I like about cost of delay, especially a qualitative version of it, is it's like in relative sizing and an agile estimation thing. Yeah, yeah. It's very easy for people to agree. So if you have the HR manager and then the operations manager and then uh, the supply chain uh, specialist in that management and the IT manager and the marketing manager are arguing over which project is more higher priority and should get all the attention of the senior level, that's hard to get them to agree on stuff. Right. So any advantage in reaching agreement over what should be focused on, what work should we finish first, and which work can we not worry about finishing just yet, yep. anything that helps that is good. And so if comparing cost of delay from one thing to the next is actually easy and it's difficult to disagree. So, for example, if I think in terms of four shapes of the curve shape, so the cost of delay is a, is like a chart, uh-huh. and so you can imagine it's it's like a it's a curve, like a uh, like a bell curve, for example. Yeah. But they're not bell curves; they're shapes. They have different shapes. So, um, a typical cost of delay it just kind of goes. It just increases with time. The longer you wait, the more you have to lose. Uh, something that's uh, cost of delay is zero until you miss a deadline. So it's triggered by you know missing a date. Like uh, you have to file your taxes or you pay this fine. If you don't file by that date, you pay the fine. Right. So the cost of delay is the fine and it's a vertical line on that date. Right. But there's no cost before that date. So you compare those two. One is a like a 45 degree angle curve, for example, the other one's a vertical line, right? But doesn't start immediately. Another one is like, we're already losing money. So for example, there's a taxi outside with the meter running every second or every minute it goes up and we're already having to spend money. So that's like, uh, you know, the line is starting high up the axis already. The right. Y axis, you're already losing money. That would be pretty urgent. Right. Get that thing taken care of immediately. And then a final one, um, we've drawn it in different ways. I, I started to just put a, a question mark. So if you think of like a bell curve with like a y, X and Y axis, yep. you just draw a question mark in there. Meaning we couldn't, we could never know. So for example, what's the cost of delay for your healthcare bill for you not doing push-ups every morning? Can't calculate that, right. but you probably know push-ups or no push-ups will have an impact on your healthcare costs. Right. But how much? You wouldn't know. You know, and there's plenty of stuff like that in, a, in an organization. Like, you know, you should work on it. It's not urgent. It's not even really that important right now. But at some point, it might turn into one of these like very extreme, like we're already losing money fast. Right. 
So if you think in terms of just those four, <clears throat> take any project and assign it one of those costs of delays. Right. And so this is where the agreement becomes easy. Let's say the marketing department says, oh, we have to release this new project, uh, this new product. We have to release this new product right away. You know, we're going to lose all of our opportunity. And they're trying to say it's like this, what we would consider like an expedite or an extreme, extremely high cost of delay. But everybody else in the company knows um, the the market's not ready for it. Nobody's even heard of it. Plus, you know, like our manager or our boss is going to stand on stage at one of our conferences six months from now and introduce stuff. And everything's a secret before then anyway. Right. So maybe it really is important, but we got six months. So it actually isn't one of those curves. Right. It's actually the flat line that goes vertical if the, if the CEO gets on the stage and says, yeah, we've got this great thing, but it's not ready yet. Or he has to wait till the next year. Right. That's It's a different cost delay curve. Right. Everyone in the company would know that even if they know nothing about the technology or nothing about the market or they're not a finance expert. They can't use Excel, but they can still do that. They could also, I think that that line could apply to like strategic yes. advantage. Absolutely. Or disadvantage. Yes. Right? Absolutely. You know, if we're going to be able to pursue these new opportunities or get into this market, if we don't implement this system mm-hmm. or change our process here or bring on 20 more people or create this new department. Yes. There's our cost of delay. Yeah. There's a strategic. Yes. Implication. Absolutely. Right. And, and actually, this is this is strategic thinking because right. you're thinking about what's the best mm-hmm. course of action for us, given what we know and that we can predict about the future, our capability to predict. What's right. the best choice? And ch- choices, essentially, they're either tactical or they're strategic. Right, right. And I get in all sorts of debates. And my, my answer for what's the difference between strategy and tactics is, uh, let's say, my strategy is like executing my boss's tactics. Yeah. So it's like yeah. a side of a coin. Sure. Yeah. You know. So next, so now you've got this all mapped out. So you have yeah. a good visualization of your portfolio of, of projects, yeah. where they all stand. You can make some prioritization decisions and you can make some decisions around allocation of resources, yeah. you know, people and money. Yeah. So the next step would be kind of, Digging in a little bit further and now starting to map that workflow yeah. to look for some of those efficiencies yeah. and some of the, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So the view we had was a, 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 a essentially a three-column board. Yep. The middle column is really wide. And we arbitrarily, even though like it's at least relatively accurate, right. like this one's more close to being done than that one is. Right. But how much is left, who knows? That's not being visualized. Or what's the next step? It's not visualized here. So you're right. Um, you don't need to carve this board up with more columns and, and, and swim lanes, which would be like a horizontal line, but you could. But you know, leaving this the way it is, is actually communicating information. Right. But then let's say any one of the cards on there, let's say it's uh, workday uh, implementation. Right. Five years. You know, $10 million or whatever. I don't know how much those guys charge. Probably less than SAP. But anyway, huge project, you know, many years. Um, IT, uh, business analysts from HR, you know, all sorts of people involved, multiple cross, cross functional uh, project will give that its own board. Right. You know, or it could be, uh, IT, uh, 
uh, enablement uh, projects. So, so like some type of software technology enablement for operations of some sort in the company. Right. You make a board of just those things because they probably have a similar workflow. Right. Like first is pick the solution, right. which hopefully hopefully comes after define the problem. Right. <laughs> Define those very clearly, yeah. then pick a solution. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, some kind of a test case or feasibility thing, you know, like a pilot or something like right. that. Right. Don't just like plan the whole thing out and then have a disaster because that was, that will happen. And if you are the VP, you probably will get fired, but all the metal managers working for you will not. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, um, a dual pilot, like a proof of concept and, and test it out. Almost then, like an MVP. Yeah. Call, yeah. Exactly. MVP is a great, great way of thinking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then start rolling it out and, and, and then, you know, testing it and, and, and then, uh, um, feedback, you know, then sunsetting what you're migrating off of and tranches are all together at once, however you do that. But there, there's some kind of a workflow that pretty much any like implementing a new, uh, uh, software, uh, tool. They similar right. workflows right so then you can see um uh for all the projects what's the current dominant activity is the way we would define the columns like a column is not like it's uh it belongs to the analyst team now right. it's more like we're analyzing it for what and so it's it's like an activity that's happening there right and there might be a variety of activities that happen within there, but you, you generally like you, you have to do that activity and be finished with it before you're ready for the next one. Right. And when you're able to do that, like when you're clear on the, the workflow and, and, and uh, the stages, and then especially the what defines the end of one of the activities and being ready to start the next one. That that's needs to be pretty clear. Right. You don't want it to be vague of like which status is it? You right. want that to be pretty clear. Right. Then uh, you can start tracking how long does it take for these things to go through there. So that'd be like your lead time. That's where the lead time yeah. comes in. You yep. can't really measure lead time without having a start and an end. Right. And that's where it becomes really powerful. And then you group similar types of work. Exactly. To see, <laughs> and then that's where you start to get your predictability for your team. Totally. Right? Totally. Or some of these initiatives. So a new one comes to you yes. or you're thinking about it, you're saying... Okay, we did similar work in the yeah. past. It took yeah. us six months to implement this. Yes. Regardless of the type of work. Yeah. If it's similar. So we have a, a pretty good degree of probability yes. that we're going to be able to deliver this within six months. Absolutely. Based on what we've learned in the past. And here's the thing that I think it should, should make clear because, you know, a DevOps IT guy. He's really sharp at your company. He 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 knows his stuff. You know, yeah. we had a great conversation, and um, one of the concepts of like, yeah, you know, measuring lead time and having predictability out of that—that's not that useful because like, here's a a type of work. It's like sometimes it takes three days, sometimes it takes two weeks. You know, maybe a lot of the times it takes three days, but I can't promise them three days, right? Because what if it takes two weeks? And and he's right. That, that that's true and it's probably not like bimodal data either right the thing is it's not a normal curve it's not a bell curve average is not the center and the highest point right you know uh, the mode which is like most of the time something like so the, the mode is like um, if you if you roll the dice a whole bunch of times and like most of the time you roll the four that would be the mode right so you have you, know, you rolled four 16 times 
one one time, six one time, and uh, I don't know something else a couple times. Right. You you know, you'd, you'd have a curve shaped on that, and the mode would be the tallest. In knowledge work, and this is this has actually been validated again recently. But in knowledge work, it's never a bell curve. In Scrum, when you measure velocity, because velocity is a different number, it's right. it's it's a number of averages, right? Which gives you an average normal distribution. Right. So you can work in averages. When it comes to lead time for a specific thing, not a collection and an average of things, right. a specific thing. It's a uh, not a bell curve. It's called a Weeble distribution or Weibel distribution. Looks like a Pareto distribution, and what that means is the curve is uh, skewed to the left, or it's tallest very close to zero, and then it it uh, declines relatively rapidly, but it has a very long tail, and the properties of that are are important. So what it means is most of the time, so the mode is uh, there, there's more numbers most of the time than average. Average is not the center right. anymore. Average could actually be far enough to the right, you know, uh, graphically speaking. Average could be far, far enough to the right that is actually a lot less than, than most of the time. But what's also... So, so what you know there is like within... If you're talking in terms of average... Almost always, it's below average right. as far as lead time. Right. So that's kind of nice to know. Yep. But what's also super important, though, is to the left side. So more than average, so we're talking lead time, it's significantly longer than average. Huh. And it's significantly longer than most of the time. So most of the time, it's three days. Sometimes it's 21 days. And that might be 15% of the time. Right. So you promise somebody three days, and three weeks later, you're barely getting finished. Right. That's a serious problem. But because of the shape of that curve, there's, there's a couple things that, that mean like measuring lead time in this way, like getting, getting the data to the point where you have these like tall, narrow, uh, long tail curves when you get it shaped that way from, from like separating non-similar work, right. different work, is what you're able to do is choose a confidence level. So, so this curve, this distribution is essentially a probability distribution right. also. So you can say, well, on average, we can get this usually three-day long thing. On average, uh, the average time is uh, six days. Most of the time it's three days, but the average would be six. Sometimes it's 21 days. But 85% of the time, it takes 12 days or less. So you can make that your service level expectation right. at 85%. Or people go to 66%. There's different choices. 85 is a common sort of generic concept. Right. But what that means is you have a 15% chance of it taking longer than that. So if you start this like usually three-day work item... 15 days before it's due, or 12 days, or whatever I said it was, 12 or 15, before it's due, there's only a 15% chance it's going to be late. Right. And it has nothing to do with how long that effort of work takes, because that's also counting all the time nobody's working on it, and it's just sitting in somebody's inbox. Right. Or they're working on something else also. Right. It's, it's, it's that. So still, it's statistically 15% chance. 
But what you can know is if most of the time it takes three, the average is six. What that means is, say you get to day six and you've promised it in say 12 days or less, you've got six days to do something about making sure this gets done on time. Right. You have a leading indicator that this particular time is probably going to be one of those long ones. So maybe we stop working on something else that's not at risk of delay right? and focus all our energy on this. Or maybe we call the customer and say, hey, you know, uh, it won't be ready next week. Is that okay? So it helps make real, those tactical decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and without speculation, without tremendous amount of math, meaning like trying to look at the dollars, without forcing employees to track their hours. Right. None of that, none of that resource management effort even has to be done. To have that level of predictability. And to me, that's the most powerful thing. And, you know, if you work for Workday, you might not like this because basically like CA and and a lot of those PPM tools are actually unnecessary using Kanban method practices. Right. So, you know, hate to say it to them. (laughs) (laughs) No, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's it's really insightful. Yeah. Being on top of budgets, one thing, but day-to-day managers don't need to be doing that. Right. They don't need to worry about the cash flow. They just need to worry about getting the work done and they don't need to use those systems to do it anymore because there's an alternative. Right. And that's the Kanban stuff. So one of the questions I get asked Mm -hmm. a lot is even, especially from, from HR, since we're on this HR example, it's like, how do you build that, that culture, that mentality? Does it start with your hiring practices? That's a, that's a a great question. And um, I would say it's, so uh, I mentioned the, the Kanban maturity model. Um, my association with that is to do with the leadership extension to it. And um, the reason I brought it up right now is I would say, you know, getting this mindset, getting these kinds of practices, not just to be implemented, but actually adopted by people. Right. It, it actually is, is the, the job of leadership. And so leadership doesn't just mean the CEO. Uh, I would define leader, leading as influencing other people is like the visible half right. or like the um, what they're doing most of the time. Uh, the other part of leadership is actually deciding things or maybe it's defining things. Right. Leadership is, <clears throat> you would think of it in two, two parts or two, not really halves, but I've been saying two halves. So there's... There's the influence part, yep. which is definitely, that's what a leader is, you know, because all sorts of people can use their judgment or make decisions or define things. But if everyone disagrees and doesn't go with them, well, they're not really leading. They're just, they're being like me on the internet at night with an argument. And like, I think the world is this way and other people disagree. No followers, right? It's funny you say that because I've actually, um, I've been reading and studying about you know, this, and I hear a lot of people talk about leading from the front. Yes. But I saw this interesting um, cartoon recently. Yeah. And it wasn't about leading from the front. You know, we talk about servant leadership yeah, and all yeah, of that, yeah, which yeah. is a big part of that is influencing yeah, and, yeah. and all of that. Enabling, facilitating, influencing, developing, mm-hmm. rather than more of a command and control type right. of mentality. So, right. But I saw this interesting uh, cartoon recently that 
showed the leader in the back. So it was a, a group of guys running, mm-hmm. and instead of being in the front, they were in the back. Yeah. You know, which was an interesting concept to me. So when I was an Outward Bound instructor, so I worked for Outward Bound for 10 years, and that is basically a mountaineering school, but it's, it's a leadership school. Yeah. It's just in the, in the California programs, it was all outdoors, almost all outdoors, mostly in the High Sierra, also in the desert. And so, uh, you know, I'd be leading what we, we, we called them patrols, but it was just a group of 10 students. And they didn't know each other. That was part of the design of the program is strangers come together, put them in a unique environment, which is the high Sierra at high altitude, and um, give them some challenges like climb that peak and learn how to use a map so you get to the right place and find where your food is in six days because it's going to be there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, through that, they'll... Like out of their element, they won't fall into habits and maybe they'll exercise some courage and develop some leadership skills. They will definitely go through the storming, norming, forming, performing, that kind of stuff. Totally. Because they have to. There's a new group. And uh, that was the structure of the program. It's actually a global school, but um, it's it's, it's many different schools that are sort of associated globally. Yep. But anyway, uh, I was in the back. So even like day, well, day one, one of us would be in the front because it's just like they're carrying a 60-pound pack for the first time in their life at 10,000 feet. And they're like dying. So they just follow the cow in front of them and flop and flop down and go to sleep for the night. Teach them how to at least uh, pace themselves. Don't, don't walk too fast. And maybe give them a little direction of where we're going. Right. And how to know when we get somewhere, like walking on a trail. And we're in the back because we can see everything. From the front, you can't see anything. Right. So that's actually the worst place. So then we get off trail, you know? Yep. So there's no trail. We're using uh, maps, which have different symbols and stuff, that, so you can know where the hell you are. If you've ever read the geological map, right. uh, topographic map, we teach them how to use that stuff. And there's two jobs, two positions for getting people from A to B. There's the the navigator and there's a route finder. And so the route finder is a little bit out in front and then they see, ah, there's a big cliff, you know, 20 foot climb up or down. Can't go through this. I have to decide, should we go left or right around this obstacle? And so they don't want everybody right behind them because then they all like stop with their backpacks and bang into each other, maybe push them off the cliff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, people hate stopping and then like, which way should I go? So you give them a little buffer to be out there exploring and probing and making decisions that are like left and right decisions. But then there's the navigator who knows, are we there yet? Are we where we want to be? And should, which direction should we go, north or south? As opposed to left or right. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So they got to be in the back. Yep. Because first of all, that's the slowest pace generally. Because, you know, uh, you, you just have to keep up. Yeah. You're not, you're not like trying to keep in front of people. You're going a little bit slower than your slowest guy. Yes. Yeah. So the navigator has that freedom to like look at a map while they're still walking some and then stop occasionally. And to be also looking at the overall land. And then they see the people in front of them. Potentially, the slope is, it's not level. There's a slope. And they, they'll see we're curving, meaning we're walking downhill. 
And we're not supposed to be doing that because we're actually going to the right now. Right. Whereas the person in the front isn't thinking of that kind of big picture. Right. They're thinking, this is a big tree that fell down. Let's go to the right around it because that's easier downhill. Right. So they, they're not really noticing and paying attention to that. Right. The navigator would be. Because also the navigator sees, well, there's a summit on the right and a summit on the left. And we should be going towards the one on the left. But our route finding keeps going to the right side of stuff. Right. So we're going the wrong way. So you, leading from the back makes sense because you can see. Right. You can see the big picture. Right. Whereas leading from the front, you can't. And so I think command and control, especially micromanaging, is what I, you could say that's like leading from the front. Like this way, follow me, do what I'm doing. Right. But they don't know what's going on because they can't see the context. Especially, they can't see the guy who's vomiting in the back of the, of the line and can't keep walking. Right. They leave them behind and they can't even hear them because right. they're behind them in the back. So if you really actually want to be taking care of the whole group, being in the back is also the best position. That's great. Now, that's a metaphor for hiking in the woods. But the principles are still the same. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think the principles still hold true. It's, it's interesting because I've heard it even recently. Leave from the front. Leave from yeah. the front. And I'm thinking, why? So I can tell you why. So um, it, within this, this work I'm doing for the, the expanding the maturity model and, and defining the leadership practices is what we're referring to. Because right. you know, Kanban is defined you know, at least 130, it's actually like 160 uh, specific practices for management. But one thing is people need to know what they should be doing, not how to do it better. Right. So what should you do? That's a decision-making part of leadership. The other thing is people need to be willing to try to do harder stuff. So if like switching from the familiar way of management to a new way, is hard, no one will do it unless they're willing to make the switch. Right. Now, you can like offer them a million dollars or like say, I'll be your best friend if you switch. You know, you can bribe people, yeah. you can threaten people like my way or the highway or like do this agile stuff or you're fired. You know, there's threats. Uh, it's much easier or I'd say much more humane and um, ethical to uh, ask people to do the right thing. You know, and then if they understand it actually is the right thing and it's not just right for you, it's right for them and it's right for the organization, it's right for the customer, uh, all reasonable people will be willing to do it. Right. Especially if they see the gap of like how unright things are right now right. compared to how much more right they'll be if we change. Right. You can rely on people to not want to be a bozo. Right. You know, people, we wouldn't like that. That's why we like transparency. Exactly. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, uh, so getting people to want to do that requires influence. And only leaders can influence. And that's actually what I would say is the definition of lead. The leaders are the ones who actually do influence people. So you don't know necessarily who that is in the company. There's all sorts of leaders, you know. And often title is not what grants people leadership. Right. It can, but it doesn't always. And so... There are, we've defined four ways to influence people. And so one of them is leading by example. And you could probably really describe that as leading from the front. So, uh, for example, back at Outward Bound again, okay. Um, 
you know, at the end of the course, we all come to like a normal campground with picnic tables and, and latrines and all that kind of stuff. And we, we had these big giant meals with like 40 or 50 people there. Like, I don't know if you've ever done camping type of cooking with these big giant pots. You have to boil four gallons of water at a time and, and all these dishes you got to wash. At the end of a big meal, biggest they've eaten in 22 days, they're tired. And, you know, they've been talking to their friends and, you know, it's like midnight and the beans are getting dry and sticking to the plates. So somebody has to clean them. Easy thing to do is, especially considering the type of teams we had just built, is make them feel guilty about not cleaning the dishes so they go up there and clean them. But what I always preferred doing, when I, for a while I wasn't actually an instructor, I was like a manager of the instructors, mm -hmm. is I'd jump in there and start cleaning dishes immediately. The first guy in there, start cleaning dishes. Turn on a lantern so I can see in the dark. Start cleaning the dishes. Right. People start coming up to help. And, you know, it's not quite like Tom Sawyer, but it's a similar principle. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not like this is so much fun. It's just, this is worth doing. And even if I'm not a student who, you generally take over all running of the entire course. The right. instructors actually hide from the students in the last few days usually. That it's like a test in a way that they can take care of themselves but um, I'm not even an instructor I'm just some manager who shows up and I'm in there cleaning that's leading from the front and I think that that's appropriate sometimes but there's three other ways we've identified another one uh, which is also pretty simple is uh, giving direction so leading by direction like I want you to do this or do this now or this is the right way that's the wrong way um, or this is what I want, or this is what I need. <clears throat> That's a simple one. And then two others, uh, one of them is uh, signaling. And so my favorite example of this is uh, in the case of like, let's say middle management is leaders can point out that metric is useless. That's, that's a vanity metric. Right. You've labeled something. You didn't say don't do that or measure this instead, but by labeling it, you've signaled the organization doesn't value that. And you will not be valuable if you keep messing around with these, like, well, you know, I, I got 600 hits on my uh, website or something like that. It's like, did you sell any products today? You know, you know what I mean? Like a vanity metric. Uh, a lot of KPIs in a company are actually vanity metrics. Yeah. Completely irrelevant to productivity. Right. Uh, other signaling, uh, for example, cutting people off who are taking the conversation in the direction that's like kind of against the values of the company, like blaming people right. or something like that. Or um, uh, uh, hearing what somebody says and as the leader, repeating what they just said. And being quiet for a second as you're thinking about what they just said in front of everybody. That's signaling. It's signaling this person's, what that person said is like what I want to say. That, that means this is the thing everyone should listen to. That's signaling. Right. Subtle. It's less obvious than directing people. Right. And the third is uh, more of an art. And uh, we call it, or a fourth, I should say. And that's um, uh, inspire. And so uh, David uh, Anderson likes to use the example of the movie Invictus, which was about the first rugby win by South Africa 
after Nelson Mandela became the president. Right. Yeah, I saw that movie. It was great. Yeah, it's an awesome movie. And uh, the the way we can describe it is, um, uh, you know, M- Mandela and Peter, I think his name, or the, mm-hmm. the, the rugby captain, were talking. And, uh, you know, he, he was saying stuff to him, but he did, wasn't telling him what to do. They just had a conversation, and, and they talked about leadership. And then anyway, uh, the, the captain... You know, leaves Mandela goodbye, and he sees his wife, and, and his wife asks him, "So, what did Mandela say?" And, he, and the captain says, "I think he wants me to win the World Cup or the Rugby Championship." Nobody told him to do that, but he he was he was inspired to do something to unite the country. Right. And Mandela like set up some like you know, I'm seeing this in the country, and I'm seeing this, and I see the power of what you're doing, and I'm wearing your jersey. Which used to be the symbol of the enemy, and Mandela was wearing it now. Right, and 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 the guy just put two and two together. It was like, yeah, I'm gonna win the championship. Yeah. So it was his idea, his goal. That's an inspiration. That that requires a little bit more art. The rest sure. are more straightforward. Sure. But that can explain how you can lead from the back or lead from the front. They're both good. Right. Just which is which is the appropriate thing to do at the time. At the time. Yeah. Right. And without a goal. Like without an intended outcome, all leadership is is most likely tampering and and actually a problem. Right. You should actually back off and hide until you decide what's the goal or decide what's the standard that we need to at least like a threshold we need to pass or um, what's the decision that needs to be made. Right. Without that, don't influence people. And so maybe you don't know what like specific sales target or specific uh, requirements to complete or uh, which section of the budget to cut, but you might know well, this is a way we want to act. So that was still a decision. Like we want to treat people this way. So influence all you can towards those decisions. Right, right. And that's really the, the, the higher up the chain of management you go, the more you should be turning on leadership uh, acti- activities. And the more you should be thinking in terms of influencing people, d- deciding stuff, and then influencing people so that they understand what the decision is. First of all, that that's hard, yep. especially at an abstract senior leadership level, to for them to understand that and that to not forget it either. Well, I think that goes back to correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, getting people behind something. It's important for people to continue to motivate them. Yes. They have to feel that they're contributing. Yes. Right? Yeah. And if they don't understand the impact that their work is making on their small slice of the organizational pie. Yeah. They never see the customer, for example. It's not, it becomes less rewarding, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's important to be influencing and also for them to really understand. And, and, and one way to influence that, for example, it's like, let's say, somebody deep internal in an internal service. No impact on the customer. Maybe maybe the company builds cars and this is some type of like a firmware software maintenance team for the manufacturing robots. So they never even driven the car. They don't know any customers, not in the marketing department, don't know what kind of cars are even being made. They're just like doing some very internal, uh, you know, deep in the company type of activity. So inspiring them to care or influencing them <coughs> to care about stuff and, 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 and be willing to, to like try to do their best can follow 
defining things. So a leader can can look at the situation. They're the ones whose responsibility this is, is to define what are the terms of success for this and, and, and define what's, what's meaningful out of this. Let's say they're just building the firmware for the robots that make a part of a car. Right. Why does this matter? Who does this matter to? And how do they know they're doing a good job? And how do they know that they've done well? Right. And how do they know how they could do better? That a leader can define all of that. And, and actually being a specific is the term I've started to use a lot recently is specificity and becoming more or being more specific in defining these kinds of things. That is something that you can try to influence people with. Yeah. But without any of that sort of like a vision or a model or however you want to describe it, like what is it that makes this dull, normal, boring job awesome and very important right. other than <clears throat> the fact there's job security? Whether you're in a support role that you yes. would think of it. It's interesting because <clears throat> so that, I had a, a conversation. A leader can do that. Yeah. yeah. I had a conversation with my wife today. <laughs> it was a, a few weeks back. My daughter loves... Felt, has fallen in love with the movie Hotel Transylvania 3. Oh, yeah. Right? Sony Pictures Animation. Crushed yep. crush it at the box office. Doing great. I walked by the poster for that on the way to Doug's office. Yeah. <laughs> she loves it. And I pick her up on Fridays from school. And she's three. Mm-hmm. And she was telling a little girl about it. Yeah. yeah. Watch Hotel Transylvania. And the girl was talking <laughs> about it. And she told the girl that her dad dad made it. Oh, wow. Because she knows I work at yeah, Sony yeah. Pictures. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. said, my dad dad made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I laughed it off. And I said, come on. I didn't, you know, but, right? But it was interesting today as I went to a meeting and the, uh, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he heads up our motion pictures group. So he's yeah. the guy that basically makes the decisions to green light okay. a motion picture yeah. or not, yeah. right? Casting calls, all that kind of stuff, right? So he's in charge of all that. And he was talking about... How all the movies are doing, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And he actually thanked the whole audience, was made up from analysts to uh-huh. software developers, IT people, all the support people here at the at the lot. Yeah. And he thanked everybody for helping to make these movies. That's awesome. That's it's great. That's a excellent what I would call an act of leadership. Right. Well done. Because our end product yeah. Are these movies and our customer are, are the people that are out there in the movie theaters watching these movies. And everything that we do is to support that. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I thought it was really cool. And I called yeah. my wife after and I was like, you know, I felt like I had a, a role in making that movie. Yeah. In a, in a, in a, in a, in a you, sense, I did. The thing is, you did. Right. You know, it's just, uh, uh, it, it's, um, uh, you know, the fact that a left fielder is catching the fly balls, it's like, yeah, great catch. Or maybe even better, like a, a you know, the middle fielder, like catching a grounder and throwing somebody out. It's But part of that was because there was a right fielder who was essentially blocking that area. Like, right. like maybe the guy knows I'm not very good at hitting to the right. And, and there's a guy out there who can catch it. So I'm not even going to take that risk. So that person had a part in right. the fact that the ball went to this other person. Right. You know, or like in the soccer field, you know, like nobody kicked the ball towards me, but that's because you were there. Right. I mean, like on your own side, you know, that's right. different. But like the, the, the other guys didn't dribble towards you and didn't kick towards because you were there. You, you're playing a part. 
Right. And uh, it's not so obvious if you're not the one with the ball. Right. But the, they don't remove team members. That, okay. So you need them all. You right. Know? And yeah, anyway. Uh, um, I just that, thought that was really cool. Yeah. But that's the job of a leader, in my opinion, to uh, to identify that stuff and define it and then communicate it. And I used to use the term communicate and we've, uh, because of working with the model and with David on this stuff, it, we're, we're narrowing to, uh, to the influence. And uh, it's four types of leadership, but it's really influencing people. Yeah. But what are you influencing them with? It's got to be some kind of decision. And, and part of that is like defining things. Right. Like we are this kind of group. And we have this kind of value. This is why we're important. And or this is who our customer is. This is what matters. It's like you know, always be on time, or uh, uh, always always uh, save them money, or whatever that kind of thing is. That's a leader can do that. No one else can really do that. Right. Meaning, if you can do that, you're leading. Actually. Right. That's that's one way to know. Right. Um, and so what we're working on now is, is taking this type of concept and, and, and creating a, a parallel to the existing maturity model. So the, the, the Kanban maturity model is essentially, you can think of it as a table, and in all the squares in the table, the boxes, are uh, specific management practices, like uh, tracking a lead time or defining a blocker policy. Uh, those are practices. And we're doing, uh, we're actually right now restructuring um, the, the leadership uh, extension to be uh, the you know, different maturity levels. So depending on where the company is, yep. like if the company can't even like have one department talk to the next department, don't bother trying to get them to save the world. You right. know, they, they don't care. They're just trying to keep their own neck above water. Right. So maybe the, the, the things you should be doing and the guidance, the specific <coughs> actions that leaders can take would be to shore up and, and, and get them solid and predictable and reliable at that maturity level as a base or a foundation for actually expanding on their maturity. Yeah. Being willing to start, to start trying harder stuff like having difficult conversations with people or um, starting to say no. Right. You know, like they're not going to do that unless maybe unless they can show why they're saying no. Right. And, and, and have it be credible. Right. Right. So the, the maturity compounds. It, it builds on itself. But leaders can inspire people or at least influence them to be willing to try that stuff. Right. And yeah. so that's that's what we're working on. And uh, so the there's the common maturity model is actually in a beta pro is a beta phase right now. Uh, the the maturity model itself will will be like a like a 1.0 type of version release uh, this spring uh, with the second edition of a book and in that second edition will be the leadership extension and and also some other adjustments to the to the whole model altogether. So how can people who you know are 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 new to this? I go back to like the HR example. Yeah, coming to a new company or you're in a position now. Like this stuff sounds interesting. I want to. Yeah. I want to take a, a deeper dive and see yeah. how can I implement some of these things. Where where should they go? Good question. So uh, training is is the answer. That's uh, like a second 
level of barrier to to get to so i don't want to start there although that's the a clearly defined one now right but um for self-study and self-help maybe to get you to the point where you can just start this stuff and then maybe some other day you realize how specifically you want to learn something through training but just on your own i mean there's some there's there's some blogs with some information and uh one of them is the lean kanban or the uh Anderson School of Management blogs. It's not very active, but those are very thorough posts. There's um, uh, for for learning the fundamentals, and those are on. Um, I'm trying to see if I can get to the the right. What was it? You uh, just said the, that the right Kanban right. essential, essential Kanban, essential Kanban. Uh, and then essential Kanban condensed is a free downloadable, and then there's like a slightly expanded one. Is that you can get a print version of it. And there's also the upstream one, which is newer. And um, um, if people are if heard of Kanban, they definitely don't know stuff in the upstream Kanban book. That's, okay. that's like quite new, unique. In a, um, we haven't even been promoting it very much until very recently, even though there's like a decade of case studies behind it. Oh, well. It's yeah. just um, the one of the things I like about the Kanban community is we're very, very... We have a high value on empirical evidence and practical use and a very low tolerance for speculation or wishful thinking and stuff like right. that. And it's, yeah. uh, it was frustrating to me when I first got involved because I was like, yeah, I got an idea, I got an idea. And everyone totally ignored me or like even like occasionally would like, like uh, debate me to show I'm wrong or whatever. And I'd be like, fuck you. But, uh, but I realized, like, you know, one reason why this stuff is as solid as it is is because there's been this very uh, high high threshold for, so for what they'll talk about. To the common person out there, I think, um, you know, a lot of this is sound. I mean, you got pretty technical in a lot of yes. parts and things like that. So it could be a little bit overwhelming. But I think the way you laid out starting with visualizing your work and then yeah. taking a deeper dive to find out, figure out that workflow – is a good place to start, and then there's, and then you can advance from there. I mean, just for somebody to get started. Yes, you know. So the stuff you're talking about. I mean, okay. you've done this for some of the biggest companies around the world, yeah. right? Yeah. So you've, you know, not just here at Sony. Different industries. Different industries. Yeah. Different big and big that's companies. What I've gotten to. Are we? Uh, that's why I've gotten yeah. to the um, uh, conclusion that. Middle management or management is is industry agnostic. It's domain agnostic. The same essential things need to happen. Right. You need to know what you're supposed to do. You need to know what you should do. Uh, you need to know when you should start it. Uh, you should know. Uh, you need to know what stuff do you not have to worry about yet. Like you can't start everything now. You have limited right. resources. Right. Um, you need to know how well things are going. And especially compared to what, meaning how are things supposed to work? Like to be very clear about that stuff. And uh, you need to know when is something going to be done? How much is it going to cost? How long will it take? You need to know all that stuff. And um, you need to meet customers' expectations. So if they're saying it shouldn't take too long or they say, oh, I don't care how long it takes as long as it's right, you need to know what that is and then make sure that they get what they want. That's totally agnostic, whether it's like building Teslas or Ferraris or uh, strategic defense missile systems or footballs or uh, ice cream. 
It, none of that matters. It's, it's the same management. Right. It's the same stuff. And it has to do with economics and uh, um, the market, meaning yeah. what, what do people want and can you combine resources to get them what they want? Well, the think, strategy level, of course, you need to know the domain. You, yeah. you need to know the customer market. And, and then the specialist skills, you need to know how to do those tasks. But managers don't do any of that work. Yeah. The other thing I think is by virtue of implementing some of these practices and mm-hmm. techniques and all that, these principles, is it creates a better working environment overall. Yes. So you have better work-life balance. Totally. All these organizations are always after you know, <coughs> work. We, you know, we're all about work-life balance. Yeah, if they really but when want it comes to be down to yeah. it, they're really not. Yeah, because they, they don't have. Well, they don't know how. They don't know how. So, because because they don't know how much work is in progress. Right. They don't know how much work is being done, and they don't know what their capacity actually is. And they certainly don't know in, in the way they define capacity. And they don't know how we define capacity, which is number of items in progress at the same time. They don't know what that number is, and even if they do, if they could count them all. They could not tell you what is the impact on throughput or how long things take from based on the number of items in process right now. So they don't know that. So they they haphazardly plan. Yeah. And haphazardly set unrealistic goals and expectations yeah. with whoever their customers are, whether those internal customers or external customers. Yeah. Which then Ends up having people trying to meet these unrealistic deadlines and plans that were met yeah. arbitrar- that were made arbitrarily, yeah. which create leads to, uh, you know, a degraded uh, work life balance. Yeah, or quality. Quality. And, yeah. of life, so, right. so the the um, uh, um, they they have no understanding of the actual capability in terms of what what is the throughput, how much demand can they uh, deliver. How much demand can they receive and, and, and also at what rate can they deliver that demand and how long does stuff take? No idea about that stuff because yeah. nobody tracks that. That's not a normal thing to do. Right. <clears throat> so they're making promises basically flying blind. Like they don't know how much gas they have and they don't know what their – they don't have a speedometer. And their team pays the price for that. Yeah. And so guess – yeah. So the, the way they meet customer demand is heroism. And sacrifice, and so if you do, if you can meet the customer demand all the time, that's level three. But um, if there's a tremendous amount of overburden, as we would call it, or um, way too much whip, you know, unsustainability. Whip is work in progress. Work in progress. Yeah, progress, yeah. it's an acronym for that. Um, you 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 definitely would be no higher than level two. So level two, you may know how to do stuff, have some policies defined, the workflow model. You know what the work is. But uh, um, you accept too much. So you, you may, start too many things and don't finish enough. Things. The only f- reason you're getting anything over the finish line is because you have those two or three people who are working until yeah. nine or ten who, o'clock every night. Heroes. Yeah, working on the weekends, getting burnt out, ultimately end up leaving your company anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> or and, and definitely uh, they won't finish some of the stuff on time. Right. So it's unsustainable. And so I meant you mentioned before about waste. Uh, what the Kanban folks, the Kanban, <coughs> the guidance from the Kanban uh, community is to first focus on overburden, which is essentially don't commit to more than you can finish. So know what you can do, what is your capability, and then sh- what we do, what we call shape your demand to to not exceed your capability. 
But I think also what plays into like that it, is expectations, because I've that's what the demand shaping is. It's it's actually changing the expectations of customers, right? And that's a hard part because if you're you know if you think of like your senior leadership, you know you've got this startup company, you've got a hundred people, yeah, they're expected to work. 14 hours a day on weekends, you yep. know, people are crying in the hallways. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, me too. I and, live in San Francisco. Yeah. So it's like, what's wrong with that picture? Because it's okay to work 14 hour days if you have equity. Right. So if you're, if you own some of that sacrifice, right. But if you're like being underpaid and, or, or whatever, that's, it's, I think it's totally unethical. You're, you're stealing from people, in my opinion. Uh, <clears throat> because once the company actually, if it does, get traction, and the people doing the work really have no insight into like the market and, 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 and the sustainability of stuff as far as like the, the financial runway, they have to be told. Right. But they're not doing that. They're focusing on the job. Right. And so to like milk people out of 14 hours a day and, and paying them, oh, we don't have a whole lot of money and we have like this crappy office because you know, we're a startup and... And then go bankrupt and then just dump them? That's, that's totally unethical. If they don't have equity, if they don't yeah, have skill, they, they, yeah, they should. They, they, should, they need know, to be able to, if they're going to make that sacrifice, they need to participate in the upside. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a lot of opinions about that kind of stuff. And that yeah. really guides the, my attitude as far as when I work with companies. But um, the, uh, the, the, the thing about you know, overcommitting and, and relying too much on people and that kind of stuff. You know, it's sad, but I actually, I had, uh, for a while, I, I, I tried talking with venture capitalists about let's like get these startups to work better. Like actually apply good management practices so they'd be more reliable and you know earlier should you keep giving them money or not. And they're not interested at all investing in the management or in developing the skills of the startup people. Not at all interested. And I, 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 I can't understand that. I mean, I, I know that that's true. And I can under, you know, I've, I've heard them say certain, you know, their attitudes about stuff. But I think it's like they don't understand management well enough. And they haven't seen the difference between managed and unmanaged. They haven't seen the difference in how much better management is. Yeah. Uh, probably because the world they live in, they're not really running things. You know, no, they're looking for the wins. They're, they're, they're placing at, bets at, at any cost. Right, but like me, you know, I, 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 you could say I place bets in the stock market. I mean, it's not bets; it's whatever. But they're bets. Well, look, they're going to. But that's not the same thing as running things. No, but they're, you know, look at a horse race. Yes, right? a venture capitalists come in and they're going to bet on three horses. Yes, actually, maybe right? five of them, ten of them. Right. Yeah. Because they know one of them is going to win. Yep. Right. So, but they don't not care. Their they don't care what that horse had to go through. They don't care if the horse is hurt or just came off an injury, could break his leg, is going to die. No. They just want they want that win. They don't care which horse wins. Right. They want one, and they don't. It's, it's sort of like with the sales metaphor: uh, the, you know, how many phone calls you have to make to make a sale. Well, how many startups do you have to invest in to get a, a return on investment? Right. You know, 10 to 1 is the common thing they say. I mean, it's not really 10 to 1, but that's the idea. So you, every, out of every 10 losses, one of them, you get some money back that overcomes and pays back your other losses. And the, here's the worst part is it's not their money. Right. They're not even, it's not even their own money. 
So they have no emotional attachment, which is good, actually, considering what this, the kinds of decisions that they face. Right. You know, saving a sinking ship, you know, that's good. But they, uh, they don't pay attention to certain qualities that could guide their investment decisions or could also um, uh, increase the likelihood of uh, um, getting something to succeed where it's not a technology problem. It's, right. it's, not, a, it's not like the, the – the, it's not an innovation problem. It was only a management problem. That's one issue. And then the next issue that they'll all have is the reason I brought this up is these like people in the startup phase, 14 hour days, all that. They're not going to run the company if it, if it works out. Right. Some professional class is going to come in here and take over. Right. And they'll be like, eventually the culture is going to push them out. The culture of a company that can operate well. Right. So that's, that's the venture capitalist attitude is like, well, we don't need management until there's money to manage, right? But but there's 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 actions, activity to manage. They Results. want to take them. To, they want to take them to traction level. Yeah, right. That's so, the proving ground. And I it's, I think it's actually it, it, it would only need to be a class. Also, they don't need like ongoing coaching. They need like uh, you know these these startup people and like deciding what to work on and, and, and that kind of stuff. That's that's basically. But whatever, they're not interested. No. But um, uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> Before that, something related to uh, to leadership, I thought. Is there anything related to that that didn't come up? Oh, uh, well, courage came up. Oh, yeah. So um, the idea of um, being, you know, working in a in a company where there's a lot of. Uh, there's too much work. You're overburdened. Uh, right. You, you, got, you have to work long hours. You, you have too many things to be dealing with. And so some of it has to just sit and wait. And now it's late. Yep. So you have to work on the weekends. And you start facing all that stuff. Uh, and it's because somebody that you're working for, one of your managers, isn't saying no when they should have said no. Because the reality was, your organization couldn't get that work done. Right. It actually couldn't. It could get it done if the management was set up separate, differently. But as things are, you can't. That's, that's a cap, that's capability. And you want to know what that actually is so that you can start saying no. And no really can mean not yet. It doesn't mean no forever. It just means not yet or not right now. Let us finish what we're working on. Or at least finish part of what we're working on, then we'll take your thing on. Yeah. But just if you just keep adding pizzas into the oven, there's no room for hot air anymore. You right. Know? And so um, that means the solution to overburden, which is the first thing we would tackle, requires courage. Now, eliminating waste doesn't necessarily require courage. Right. And I think that's one reason people like to start there. It can often often just require blame. Like, look at these guys wasting time. Let's like eliminate that job or eliminate that step or let's take these two software systems and combine them into one even though now nobody knows how to do their job anymore. I've just saved that much money. That's easy, but it's usually actually quite destructive. If you can't calculate the actual impact of that stuff, 
like the real thing, like not yeah. just, you know, this software costs $50 a month, this one's $25 a month. If it's actually, this is how hard it is for people to get their work done with this software versus this other software, how much easier it is and what that impact would be. Then if you can't do that, you shouldn't be trying to cut waste. Yeah. When I was referring, when I mentioned reducing waste, I was kind of referring to it. I think similarly, how you're talking about it, which mm. is, um, you know, once you visualize, once you have that transparency, you're able to see and you have clear goals. Yeah. And you have all that. Yeah. Any activities that aren't aligned with your specific goals. Yeah. Get eliminated or reduced yeah so you're really hyper focused on the highest value things towards your goal yeah when you can see all that then then that's before you can see that stuff right. you, you you shouldn't be thinking of what's a waste no, of time no 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 uh, obviously some things people already know but but our our caution would be don't don't focus on that so much let's just say you're doing a lot of work and a lot of that work is waste and you want to do less waste well first do less work at the same time. Don't deliver less work. Just like this day, this hour, have fewer things started. Right. Finish one of those before you start the next one. Right. That's limiting work in progress. Yep. That's actually getting in control of your capacity, which is essentially getting in control of your budget. Because otherwise, the budget is just sort of being and it's also, spread out all over the place. It's also proven, things. I think, through Little's Law. Oh, it, it totally is. That- yeah. It's a mathematical principle. That you get more done by limiting the amount of stuff you're focused on. Yeah, and the only – so there's three parts to that equation. It's a it's like an ROI calculation. There's something on the numerator, something on the denominator, and that division equals something. Right. So it's the average lead time – I'm sorry, the average work in progress divided by the average lead time equals the average delivery rate. Right. You can only control one of those. Which is the uh, whip, right? The, the you can control the number of items in progress, right? It's the only thing you control, and it's actually extremely easy to control. It's only a decision, right? It's and, and if you want to have a constant one, it's a policy, right? Five is the maximum, or twenty, or a hundred, or one, but you just decide that number. That directly impacts how long does stuff take, and how many things can we get done in a time period right yep. <clears throat> and but by doing that uh, you eliminate overburden and then one of the wastes which is not often one that people will see immediately but it's critical or significant is um, delay so for example i start making your your drink at starbucks you know like steam the milk and i pour it into the cup and then I start somebody else's latte and start steaming their milk while yours is sitting there getting cold. And then when I finish that milk, and then I start blending somebody's juicy blendy thing. And now there's two cups that aren't finished. They're started and not finished, but they're getting cold. I don't know if you've ever been frustrated at Starbucks waiting for your drink and you see that the barista just keeps starting stuff and changing what they're doing. Right. All that is, it's, it's waste, meaning... The the drinks are colder, plus I was standing there as a customer waiting, taking up room in the store. Maybe people walking by about to enter the store realize, look at that long line, and they walk on. When all the person had to do, in some of my cases, I get very frustrated by this. 
I'm sure. They just need to put the lid on and slide it closer to where I can reach it. Yeah. The drink is finished and it's just sitting there. But they, the last step, put the lid on, slide it to where I can reach it with my own hand. And it's like they have some type of like internal uh, uh, psychological thing where they, they don't want to finish things. <laughs> it's like they, they don't like to let go or I don't know what it but it's how would they not notice that? But, um, uh, but that applies to knowledge work way worse because you can't see the unlitted drink getting cold on the counter. Right. It's invisible. Yep. So uh, okay. just by limiting the whip, you, you, you eliminate all of that kind of waste. You may never have even seen it before. But you've eliminated it, right? So that's why, I like, that there's a goal uh, uh, at a company to you know, to measure the total lead time it takes for things to happen, and let's reduce it by five percent. Yep. And uh, I think it's funny because you could reduce the lead time by fifty percent probably very easily. Five percent is you know probably the margin of error is ten percent. Right. So so the the total lead time for most work that's not in a um, a combinized system or a system where you've limited the number of work items in progress with, you know, definition of like how the work should flow. Right. If you don't have that in place in your traditional management, lead times are extremely long and trimming the tail on that lead time distribution, you know, like past average, past the 85 percentile, right? way out there. Trimming that in half is not that big of a deal, right. actually. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a saying not yet to somebody. So that's a first thing. So 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 going yeah. back to our original example, yeah. Um, you know where to start. Visualize yeah. everything, where it is. Put it in your columns. Yeah. Visualize um, the stuff, and then a, a second uh, action would be so. Given what you've got. Uh, the work that that's happening right now and the work that you're you should be committing to soon but maybe haven't yet and the work that you've finished or are you finished or not and you need to decide and figure that out um, sort through that stuff what's started what's not started uh, when specifically do we claim something has been started do we agree with the customer or the requester have we actually committed to this and started this or not and then start to narrow down and, and, and reduce the total uh, number of work items in progress. That's a, that's a quick win. Very quick win. And it's very easy, very to, easy do. to do. Yeah. Very easy to do. So, so set, uh, set that what we call whip limit, right? Yeah. So on that in-progress column, decide, okay, let's start here. We can yeah. always see what's working and whatnot. And that's the thing. Uh, people ask, like, what should my whip limit be? And um, <clears throat> there isn't a correct answer for that uh, because uh, so you change the whip limit that's like that's going to affect the lead time and the delivery rate. And um, the de delivery rate is not necessarily better if it's infinity, meaning like every second you deliver logarithmically more things, right? Um, and also lead time, if it takes like a millisecond is not necessarily ideal. So you don't have to like keep adjusting things to like astronomical uh, uh, um, uh, performance. Um, and in some, in some times, I should say actually in many cases, a slight improvement is significant. Right. Just like even if the, the, the performance doesn't change much, 
other than it's more consistent or you just know like you can predict it more. Right. Sometimes that's all you need. Right. <clears throat> Here's a common example. People in where I've been working the last few, several months, there are some of the groups are, you know, they had a four week release cycle. So every four weeks they would give the customer what they asked for. Sometimes they didn't make it. Customer, you know, they have 20 customers asking for stuff. At the end of the four weeks, they delivered most things to most customers. And for some, it, they, they didn't make it in time or it wasn't good enough. Now they're doing it every six weeks. And always, everything is always on time. The customer is never disappointed that it was late <clears throat> or they're not disappointed that it wasn't done well. So a faster delivery rate or a higher delivery rate is not necessarily what customers want. Right. So that's another they another want. whole can of worms regarding like the Kanban yeah. body knowledge, yeah. which is fitness for purpose. Right. And uh, that's that's a whole other topic. We'll have to we'll yeah. have to bring you on here another time and yeah, talk about that yeah. and dive into leadership. But I think yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, so I think this was really really helpful, and I think you know you gave some people some, some good ideas to start with to dive into yeah. Yeah. Kanban and what's a good place to just start. Yeah, start visualizing, start making those. You know, you're setting up your board with your post its and all yeah. of that. Yeah, um, look at you know limiting your work in progress that's an easy thing to do yeah you yeah. know um, we covered a lot of ship a lot of stuff about leadership yeah you know um influencing you yeah. know and the different types of, of leadership and i think you know those are all to me easy things to do we live yeah. in this world though yeah know? yeah like, i mean that's why we have guys like you and yeah. you big box to <laughs> who can certify people on kanban and you're writing yeah. books about it and all that but is there anything you want to kind of leave our audience with in terms of where to go, how they find you? There's other people that are, you know, whether you're in a startup company or working for a large organization, you think it would, you know, be beneficial to have, you know, maybe be able to reach out to you, you know? Sure, sure. There's, there's a couple things. One is um, I, I would direct people to David J. Anderson's blog. Uh, which is not active, but the content that's in there is is actually quite thorough and and, and written for normal people. Okay. And it's uh, the address is Anderson dot one word dot com slash blog or something like that. Okay. But uh, if you type in David J Anderson Kanban Google search, you'll find his find his blog. content. Yeah. Uh, and uh, talking about some of the stuff I have and it's it, it's the books don't support the latest stuff yet right. where the books are like in progress, but sure. they're not finished. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Um, uh, so that would, I would bring that up, but um, I can be reached uh, in my, through my website is one way, which is my last name, uh, McGee, M C G E C I.com. Uh, the C I stands for corporate in- innovation. One of the things I do is help, Companies implement these kinds of things, and the purpose of that is to have a company that can come up with radically different ideas, disruptive ideas, and actually implement them with the people that they've got. Right. Not you know not hiring some new creative innovative people or, or buying some innovative IP. Just your own people. Just get yourselves to be more agile. 
so that you can explore stuff. Right. <clears throat> but uh, I've, I've started to shift my focus, and uh, my marketing personal marketing material doesn't reflect that yet. But I've started to fit, shift my focus on developing leaders and developing managers, so actually just the people themselves to be able to implement this stuff. So there's there's we actually already we've talked about pretty much all of this. The leader. To, uh, to develop their ability to make decisions and to define things. So having models to, and frameworks to do that. And then um, to have the, develop the skills to influence or communicate these decisions right. among people in a way that's appropriate to the people they're trying to do it with. Right. So let's say you have a team of, you have a team or a company full of adversaries and backstabbing the actions you should be taking to influence them are different than one that's like super high performing, like best in class, like everybody's super collaborative. Um, You actually want to get the people there, but you know, you you have to, you, you, you you have to connect with the people. So, so that's part of it. But so let's say, you know, you have a vision People need to be able to do it. And so what's often missing from leadership content and, got, and you know, advice for leaders is, so now you got their attention, now they're inspired, now they're motivated, what should they do? And so if they're like manufacturers, teach them Lean Six Sigma. If they're writing software development, teach them XP, Scrum, or you know, something like that. Right. If they're middle managers, what do they do? That's where the management development stuff comes right. in. So there's all these specific practices. That's the missing link. Yeah, that's exactly really where is. I'm focusing all my energy on now. Yep. And uh, it's it's. I basically have been doing that kind of thing for a while, but uh, now there's it's it's all codified with you know uh, models, specific practices, levels of practices, data all to support kind of, it, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, all that's wrapped up in it, into it. But but basically, what should the people who are kind of in the middle of, so this is what we should be doing. This is our strategy, or this is what matters. This is what the customers want. And here's all the people who basically get their heads down into the work. Who's paying attention to how the company's being run? I've been working with people like that for a long time. And, uh, you know, I started actually introducing Agile to people like that when I lived in Japan. That's where I learned Agile. And um, you know, people who weren't, they weren't in the software industry, but they, they needed a way to, like, manage unpredictable work. So, yeah, like I said, so I've, I've, I've shifted my focus to, to less about trying to get organizations or groups of people or teams or services to adopt practices and, and, and implement Agile in some way. And to focus on getting the, the leadership is really the managers who have a leadership role. Right. Like that's kind of their job too, to understand the stuff and be able to use it and do it. And then they're going to the people working for them and saying, I want you to set these things up in this way because I need you to come to me at the end of the month for our, our reporting meeting and give me these answers. How long does it take this stuff to get done? What are the steps that you're taking to improve that? Um, what are the risks in, in delivering our stuff? And what are, the, what are the opportunities we have to shift resources around? Ba- basically, 
asking the people working for them to start implementing these management practices so that the middle managers get very high predictability um, and they're able to make predictive, they they can make decisions based on uh, probabilistic forecasts. They can tell executives who are saying, hey, you know, I need you to get this stuff done. They could tell them realistically and with confidence we can or we cannot do that. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, also my Twitter oh. Twitter handle is uh, at, no, at, at <laughs> McGeeCI. No, I'm sorry. It's at smcgeeci.com. Perfect. Yeah. And I'm awesome, active on Twitter. Yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was an awesome that was, conversation. That was insightful. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, we'll chat soon. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> so thanks for listening to notables we hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did please head on over to itunes and leave us a review and rating you can also support the notables podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes just visit anchor.fm notables or click the link in the show notes your support is greatly appreciated for more information and show transcripts please visit www.notablespodcast.com.